Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeon. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. And this is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 72. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Donovan. And this is Jerry. And Josh is unable to make an appearance today, but uh, we do have a ton of news to cover. And that being said, we are covering all of the news from July 3rd through July 24th. This episode is, in fact, late because of Comic-Con. We're specifically held off on recording an episode before Comic-Con because we wanted to make sure we got all of the news from Comic-Con on the latest podcast. But with that means there's also going to be a double, I guess, two weeks in a row worth of podcasts because uh, we can't fall behind on the comic reviews. And with this episode, we are only going to be covering the comics released on July 6th and July 13th, which does come to a total of eight books. But that means that we still have uh, the last week's worth of comics, July 20th, as well as this following week's week. This following week's worth of comics, July 27th, to cover. So next week, a lot less news and more reviews. So we'll probably spend a little bit more time on our reviews for that episode because, coincidentally, it turns out that DC has actually kind of spaced out the books properly where we're actually getting in the neighborhood of four books a week. So it's actually pretty even instead of being one podcast with four books and one podcast with ten books. So thank you to DC for that. All right. So, like I said, there's tons of news to go over. We have not only Comic-Con stuff, but we also have a bunch of stuff related to news prior to Comic-Con. And although there wasn't too much, there was some. So, let's go over some of this stuff. Here! Shoot on sight! Twelve years, and the ache is still fresh. The very first thing we've got is on July 5th, the Harvey Award nominees were announced and one Batman creator was nominated, and he is Frank Quietly for his work as the cover artist for Batman and Robin. So the Harvey Awards will be announced later this year, and if he wins, we'll be sure to report that. Almost an entire week later, July 11th, the source revealed the Bat books that will be hitting stores in October. All the titles are in the obviously the new DC universe and as expected will continue where issue one left off. Here are the highlights of what we can expect. It seems that the largest push is the addition of new villains in the Batman universe. The following titles have villains mentioned. Batman has a mysterious killer in an owl skull mask. Batwing has a character called Massacre. Detective Comics has a character called the Gotham Ripper. Batman and Robin has the Nobody. Uh, Girl has someone called the Mirror, and Batwoman has a terrifying new villain, stalks the innocent children of Gotham City, and Nightwing has a mysterious assassin. So, the rogues gallery is definitely growing when it comes to these new titles. Catwoman continues to play the role of lover for Bruce Wayne, even though he has his eye on a character named Charlotte Rivers in Detective Comics. 
The general theme for October seems to be moving the characters along and not waiting on the effects of the number ones. All the titles announced clearly have development of characters on some level. November will probably continue that same approach. Really anything super new um, out of these announcements. Now it was announced later in the day that there is going to be two miniseries that are going to release also in October. The first one is going to be called Penguin Pain and Prejudice. Written by Greg Hurwitz and art by Seisman Kuransky. And the other one is The Huntress, which will be six issues, written by Paul Levitz and art by Marcus Toe and John Dell. It's interesting, I guess Huntress isn't going to be playing a role in Birds of Prey. We haven't seen her in any of the art for Birds of Prey, so that is something that I know some fans were wondering. Penguin, to get his own miniseries, is kind of an, also an interesting twist. Not so much the fact that it's because it's part of this new DC universe, but more of this fact that Penguin doesn't really have a lot of focus on the character. I mean, he sprouts up here and there for when people want to have a, have a specific plot element that they need Penguin for, but for the most part, we don't see Penguin really explored as much as uh, some of the other Batman characters, so it's interesting that he'll be getting his own miniseries. Maybe Huntress will be killed off before the relaunch. I mean, probably not, but I will say I do find the creative team for that miniseries pretty interesting. Paul Levis and Marcus Toe and John Dell. That's a really interesting team there, and I'll be, I'll be, I will be interested to see how that turns out. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily like Helena just personally, but <laughs> as a, as though she were real. But um, the team alone has me interested. Yeah, I'm also interested by the team. It's good to see Marcus Toe on a book, especially after how many people were upset after he um, didn't appear to be on any of the new 52 titles. And from the looks of the cover, the Huntress's costume appears to be a lot more appropriate, let's say. Yeah, less revealing. Um, yeah. One thing that is interesting is that uh, I would, you know, the Batman Universe obviously follows a lot of people on Twitter. The people we specifically follow are a lot of the comic creators on the books. We've been following Marcus Toe for quite some time because of his work on Red Robin. And the creators have been known to post, you know, preview images of panels and pages that are upcoming issues. And we follow a lot of those. But the one thing that was kind of interesting was when they announced the Huntress series, Marcus Toad tweeted something on Twitter saying that he just found out that he was going to be working on the series literally a week before the announcement. So I'm starting to have a lot of doubts about uh, the day in digital releases and the deadlines that were all specifically talked about you know, back almost two months ago where, well, everything will have to be in the hole three months ahead of time, and that explains why there's so many creators off their current books for the last couple months of the regular DC Universe before the relaunch because they're going to have to get these books in order. But if the artist who's going to be releasing a book in October doesn't know till the beginning of July, I doubt that that book's going to be done three months ahead of time. There were a lot of really disturbing uh, things about release dates and information and preparation time revealed during Comic-Con that we'll get into a little later. But this will be a recurring theme that people won't know until the 11th hour that they're on something or they're off something or that something is being scheduled. And that is distressing at the very least and abundantly irritating at the very most. So on July 13th, there was an interview that was posted on Comic Book Resources with Greg Hurwitz about his upcoming miniseries related to the Penguin. 
So for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Joel will read for Greg Hurwitz. With this book, you're writing the story of Penguin, who despite being one of Batman's longest-running villains, is also one of one people seem to have a harder time nailing down than some of the other big names like the Joker. What was your first exposure and first impression of the character, and where was the moment where you felt you got what he really was all about? Oswald is tougher to nail down, and there have been quite a range of interpretations. If you look at TV and movies alone, it's a wide span between Burgess Meredith and Danny DeVito. For me, the moment I got the character, and a huge inspiration for this series, was reading Jason Aaron's and Jason Pearson's Joker's Asylum story. I thought that Jason A. approached Oswald with the compassion and care, as well as tremendous insight into what motivates a man like the Penguin. The contrast in that story between the Joker and the Penguin is a a compelling one, since Oswald, unlike the Mad Hatter and the Joker, is not insane. In fact, it is his cold sanity that is so chilling. This series does focus on Oswald Cobblepot's origin. Where, for you, did that story need to start, and how much ground did you want to cover in his life overall? It starts at the moment of his birth, and I dig into his childhood quite a bit. His relationship with his mother and his brothers how he finally spreads his wings, so to speak, and lumbered into infamy. We know from the solicit that his mother plays a strong role in the book, and a name like Pain and Prejudice can't bode well for that relationship. What kind of torments in in general really shape the man who will be the Penguin throughout his rise as an adversary of Batman? You might be surprised at the role mother plays in his life. An overbearing father, tormenting older brothers, and ceaseless bullying play huge factors in shaping Oswald into what he becomes. Once he attains power, he wields it with an iron fist, never to return to the powerless weakling of his childhood. He is someone who will not suffer an ounce of perceived disrespect, and no matter what you do, don't laugh at him. Speaking of the Dark Knight, what kind of role does Batman play in the story? If we're following Penguin throughout... Is there a chance your first time writing the Cape Crusader will cast him as the villain? Very interesting question. While the focus is on the Penguin here, Batman does swing into the story and play a key role. And yes, if you're Oswald, Batman is the villain. He represents everything that Oswald is not, a broad-shouldered hero who inspired awe and respect merely by entering a room. And Batman also represents all the bullies of Oswald's past, Everyone who ever pushed him around and told him what he could or couldn't do. Alright, so that is the entire interview. I gotta say, I'm I'm quite interested in seeing how this is going to to pan out. I'm, you know, Penguin's definitely not a character that I would bend over backwards and say I'm, I'm really excited about and I'm really looking forward to it. But at the same time, as everyone knows who listens to this podcast, I'm a huge fan of history and creating more of a backstory for characters and things like that. And that's what this miniseries is, plan is is going to be. So I'm definitely looking forward to this. Yeah, this this does sound interesting. Like Dustin, Penguin's not really one of my personal favorites. I'm, I don't hate the character whatsoever, but at the same time, that's not he as, as classic of a villain as he is. In this day and age, it's sort of hard for me to see him as a conceivable threat for Batman. So whenever he's introduced in a story, he you always see him as like sort of like a secondary villain to uh, preview the, a better villain. So having a miniseries on him does sound intriguing. I will be interested in reading it, but um, I, w- I will say that it would have to also, uh, for it to be good in my eyes, uh, really legitimize him, him as a character in this day and age. 
I'm looking forward to this too. I think it's really interesting, the idea of looking into his past and seeing how the small things have, effect, have affected him and how he's turned into this character. I'm just wondering how similar it might be to um, Batman Returns, just in the aspect of him being sort of victimised. I mean, that definitely seems like the approach that they're going to be taking and why, I guess when you look at it and based on his description, it's almost as if there's, you know, Oswald Cobblepot sees himself as a normal person. Yeah, he might do some gray area things, but if you look at it from the perspective of the Penguin, Batman is this person who's trying to go against the gray area that he's attempting to do. But in, in the same regard, if you look at it from Batman's perspective, it's the same way, just vice versa. So it'll be interesting. I wonder if some compassion will actually grow amongst the fans for Penguin after the miniseries. We'll have to see. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. Also on July 13th, Paul Levitz talked about his Huntress miniseries with Newsrama. So for this interview, I'll read for Newsrama, and Don will read for Paul Levitz. It sounds like it really removes her from the shadow of Batman. Not that she always is in his shadow, but being in Gotham... There's always a shadow. Yeah. As she kind of breaks away to Italy in your miniseries, how would you describe her as a character? Who is the Huntress as we pick up number one of your series? And how is she differentiated from other female characters in the DCU? One of the things that makes her different from a lot of the other females in the DC universe is that she has a very focused anchor. This is someone who became an adventurer for a set of reasons that are not related to a magic gift of powers or supernatural kindness. She got pissed, and she's doing something about the things that, that the, in the world that pissed her off. That gives her an edge that maybe some of the others don't have. After working so much on stories about the Legion of Superheroes recently, is writing the Huntress offering a, offering new writing challenges? It's a wonderful challenge. It's a wonderful change from doing the Legion stuff. I've been bouncing the last couple of months with a lot of Legion stuff with wrapping up the old cycle and starting the new 52 version. But also, I know Denise Cohen has mentioned that I'm working on a Batman story with him. So it's nice to do something different like the Huntress miniseries. I haven't done anything like this, I guess, maybe ever. When I wrote the Huntress years ago, it was little eight-page backups, which was a different rhythm. What's changed the dynamic of saying, okay, so I've got basically 120 pages to tell the story cycle in, and that's a different plotting structure too. The Hunters has been wonderful to do. It's got a whole different style and fashion. I went back and reread some of my Modesty Blaze, and it was good fun. So I'm really enjoying the whole process. All right, so that's the end of that interview. Paul Levitz, he did a good job with those backup stories that he was referring to back in the day when he wrote those. And he understands the character, which is important. And I think a lot of times writers are given chances to understand a character without actually understanding. But this, he's he has a past with the character... And he does understand the characters, so I'm sure that this miniseries will be interesting nonetheless. I forgot that he worked on Hunter's Pre-Crisis, so it will be interesting to see how he approaches this version of the character. And again, like I said, like we said a little bit a few minutes ago, it, I wonder if this leads off into her place in uh, the New 52. Yeah, maybe she'll actually have a definite area that she'll be in, or a definite series, I should say. I'm looking forward to this less than the Penguin one. I think I read somewhere, I'm not sure if we'll cover it later, that she's supposed to be in Venice, or at least Italy, at this in this series. So I'm not sure if that will play a role in her future in the DC Universe, or if it's just for this series, but it, that will be interesting to see. Alright, so then that is actually all of the normal news. Now we're going to get into the San Diego Comic-Con news. So obviously San Diego Comic-Con took place 
if you include preview night, July 20th through July 24th, and obviously DC Comics had a huge presence at the convention and released little bits and pieces about what we can expect. Now, obviously, there's tons of things related to the DC Universe that were, were revealed, but in regards to the Batman books, that's something that, obviously, we would only be specifically talking about here. So, we're going to cover through this stuff day by day and kind of cover what 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 we can expect from the new DC Universe since that was the main focus of what people were talking about. So, the very first thing is, on July 20th, before... San Diego Comic-Con actually started. The night prior, July 19th, Dan DiDio decided to include fans who would not be able to make it to the show in a Q&A session on his Facebook page. So he gave some answers to fans, and he really just presented some more questions to other questions that were presented to him, just as if he would actually be holding a main panel. There's only a couple of things that were actually mentioned in regards to the Batman universe, we'll go over those right now. Stephanie Brown will remain a part of the DC Universe following the September relaunch. However, Didio won't reveal where she is just yet. Sorry, but we're keeping some secrets, he wrote, and one of them involves Stephanie. The other thing that was mentioned was, when can we expect the release of Dark Knight Boy Wonder, the planned six-issue conclusion of Frank Miller and Jim Lee's all-star Batman Robin the Boy Wonder? And his answer was, probably when he's the teen wonder. So clearly, there's no what? There's there's no hurry for that that project as of right now. Okay. Is that Didio making another joke about delays? Yeah. Uh. Needless to say, Didio well, had had a lot of points of contention with the fans during the Comic Con. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about some of the delays because he does mention that almost at every single one of the the panels because fans were asking about it. Alright, so on those two notes, nothing really big. Stephanie will be apart, so it's not like she's going to die next month in August. So that's good for Stephanie fans, including myself. Obviously, we don't know what she's going to be, but we may get into what she might be with some of these other panels. So first up, on July 21st, this was Thursday at the comic convention, DC held a spotlight for Grant Morrison. Now, most of it was talk about his different books that he's doing a lot of the talk was about action comics because he's going to be working on action comics come september but there was some talk about batman and this is what there was said batman incorporated will fit into the batman line which will launch in january morrison has no plans for dr hurt or scarlet appearing in his batman work before his stories end leviathan is more about bruce and damien than dick and damien and therefore works with the new status quo within the relaunch Morrison is a big fan of Charlie Fish's the all-new Batman Brave and the Bold series. So, with these, let's go over these real quick. Batman Incorporated will fit in. So, it'll be launching in January, which is a month earlier than they said, because originally they said February. I'm hoping that having four months off is enough time for the book to actually make a regular monthly occurrence and not ever get delayed. That would be great. I'm not really upset that Dr. Hurt or Scarlet aren't going to be appearing in, in any of his Batman work. I think the thing is, Grant Morrison's a, a guy who likes to create new characters, and either they take off or they don't. And we've seen Scarlet recently appear in Batman and Robin, and we know that Professor Pig will be in the Batman series come September. So clearly, these characters have taken off Dr. Hurt. I don't think anybody wants to use because 
He's just too evil. My um, concern is, he says that it will fit into the new relaunch. I'm just wondering if it will fit in as in, yeah, you can shoehorn it in, or if it fits in as in, that's the direction he was going to go anyway, and it's it's just good that it fits together. I think it's one of those shoehorn things. But basically, I mean, the whole idea is it just seems like if it really is a Bruce and Damien story, what does it really matter? Because we, since Batman Robin ended, we really haven't seen Dick and Damien teaming up inside of Batman Incorporated, besides the occasional appearance here and there. So I don't really think it makes that big of a difference. So in that regard, I don't think it's necessarily going to be a part of a shoehorn where you can plug it in. But I think the shoehorn element is going to be I can't imagine how Batman Incorporated with the you know the Leviathan storyline is actually going to work into what's actually going on in the Batman books after you've only had four months to kind of take over the relaunch, make everything work, and then somehow fall right back in line with everything Grant Morrison is doing. So I find that a little hard to believe if it, that's the intent. So then the next panel was the DC's New 52. Now they had a panel every single day related to the New 52, but this was Thursdays. So here were the highlights. Paul Cornell mentioned that there would be an oracle of the medieval times of sort in the form of an archer that cannot walk but must ride a horse all the time. There's no comments needed on that. Um, the new history of the DC Universe will reveal itself over time instead of all at once. So that means clearly come September we're not going to be seeing this timeline, which we haven't even talked about yet, but they mentioned a timeline throughout the entire convention and a room that has all of the events and the order of the events and everything to make sure that everything is kept track of, but uh, we're not going to be seeing that anytime soon. Uh, Damien is still Robin, and Dick, Tim, Jason have all been Robin as well, So, but they didn't say Stephanie was Robin. So with the fact that they said that there's only been four Robins, that would mean one of two things, either the... Stephanie Brown as Robin, even though her tenure was very short, is, is either being reconned out with the relaunch, or they're just too stupid to think about the fact that someone was talking about Stephanie Brown. Now, the, the first option is more likely. Um, it could explain how she gets back to being spoiler, as she's clearly not going to be back or come September. And if they got rid of the Robin, that would get rid of most likely her fake death and then also eliminate the need for her to become Batgirl after she's brought back. So that that's most likely what's going to happen with that. Okay, now, uh, now, like you said, True, her time as Robin was very short relatively. I think even in real time it was no longer than three months. But at the same time, thinking about like the, logic, the logical uh, process of uh, making her Batgirl, I think that her time as Robin really built her up, built up her legitimacy. I mean, she was trained specifically by Batman, and ideally, if if the history is now that she was spoiler the entire time, and they put spoiler as a replacement to Cassandra, <laughs> it's a little insulting in my opinion, and it's insulting to both Cassandra, even even more insulting to Stephanie, because it shows that Stephanie's history as a character towards the Bat family as a Robin, as well as Batgirl, is irrelevant because she's not. A boy with black hair. If this is what it truly is, then it's needless and really annoying. And that's one of the things that about this reboot that sucks. But see, I think you're looking at this from the wrong perspective. Okay, so what you're basically saying is that if Stephanie's history gets wiped out prior to her being, or forward from her being Robin, so her Robin, her death, 
her becoming Batgirl, all that gets wiped out. You're just basically saying that that character becomes less legitimate. Well, specifically what I'm saying is that, like, her as Robin, that part of her life, even though it was very short, as short as it was, it was actually very significant. And if that's taken out, I think that really guts the character's legitimacy and gives DC more of a reason not to use her because without that aspect of her, her life and her relationship towards Batman, they don't really see a need to have her included in a lot of the storylines because since she was Robin, you know, a Robin is a very important character in the Batman mythos, obviously, so... If that's gone, that, you know, it would be like saying if Tim Drake was never Robin, then why would he ever have to hang out with Batman? And true, Stephanie was Batgirl, but now that Barbara's being Batgirl again, it makes her even more of like a paper mache sort of character thing, and they can just like toss away because her history is not as relevant. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, but I think the, the, the thing is that DC doesn't look at Stephanie as that important of a character. And like that, it kind of goes. And I'm not agreeing with what that what they're saying. And I'm definitely not saying that she's not an important character because, you know, I was skeptical at first of Stephanie Brown being Batgirl, just because she really didn't have a whole lot of time in the main main stories of what you know before she was Batgirl. She had you know a small part during Battle for the Cow. She didn't have a huge role, and I was kind of skeptical. I wanted her to be Batgirl over everybody else. But at the same point, I was skeptical of it. Brian Q. Miller did an amazing job writing her, gave gave the character a lot a lot of life that I think a lot of the Batman books lack as far as the you know dual identities. You know, we saw a lot of her personal life at the same time we saw a lot of her in in the Batgirl suit. It was very evenly balanced in some regards compared to a lot of the other characters. So don't get me wrong when I say I don't want the character just to disappear or to become you know, worthless. But at the same time, I think that, you know, we've got to look at it from this. If they're saying she wasn't Robin, we can't just assume that just because she wasn't Robin, that means that she was never trained by Batman either. Obviously, everything is not going to be explained right now. We don't know everything right now. So I don't want to jump to a conclusion where it's saying, well, she isn't as important of a character because that time where she was Robin she was trained by Batman for that short amount of time that is gone and even though a thousand other things could happen to completely change the character direction completely I don't want to jump to conclusions and say well this is a horrible idea because based on a lot of what they've said at the convention which we'll get into a lot more there's a lot more things that seem a lot like they have a plan and they know what they're doing I don't think they've really planned it out as much as they'd like us to believe Mainly coming from just the idea, the whole idea of the relaunch was starting in March of 2010. But I, as you say, we'll get we'll get into it more. I, I just they didn't, they didn't think about it too much, and they just oh well, uh, that never happens. My opinion of uh, based on what I've heard. Either that, or they just haven't really come up with concrete answers for what has happened, what hasn't happened. Right. All right. The other things that, that were said was that the Bat books are affected very little as the storyline almost continues straight through into the relaunch. So clearly that's going to be a little bit different with certain books, Batgirl being one of them, Birds of Prey going to be another one. Barbara Gordon is going back to being Batgirl because she is the most recognizable version of the character. That's what they stated. Now, <laughs> what's interesting is, if you ask most people who Barbara Gordon is, they, would, they, might, they might say Batgirl. The, the characters had very few really huge media appearances that mainstream audiences would associate. 
Yes, she was in the animated series, but only towards the end of the animated series. Um, she was in the Batman, but again, that was only towards the last couple seasons of the show. And she was in Batman Robin. Besides those three appearances, she's she hasn't been in anything. She wasn't in any of the animated movies except for uh, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, and that was only like a, a flashback scene more so than anything else. She was in Sub-Zero, but that was like for 30 seconds as Batgirl. Yeah. Wasn't she in the 60s, Shy? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that DC's reasoning of we made her Batgirl again because she's the most recognizable version. By that reasoning, there's nothing to stop them from making Dick Grayson Robin again, literally. Yeah. Which, I mean, it just goes to show that, okay, you want, I understand you want to bring in new people and bring in a mainstream conception of uh, an idea of a character to people who don't, are not more familiar with the comic book history. But then don't cherry-pick these certain characters because really, I mean, as, as awesome as Tim Drake is, as much as like the majority of comic fans love Tim Drake as Robin more than Dick Grayson, I would still venture that Dick Grayson is much more recognizable as Robin than Nightwing, in my opinion. So if you're gonna use that, if you're gonna throw that logic out at me with with Barbara Gordon, then don't don't wuss out with Dick Grayson either. And the fact that you're not doing that just shows a certain level of um, disconnect. I think the the really aiming for Dick and Babs to get back together in some sense, and because of that, they want them to be closer in age than than they have been in the past. And closer in walking ability. Well, yeah, that too. That always helps. Alright, so then the next panel was the actual Batman panel. This also happened on Thursday. Now, despite the fact that there was a ton of creators present and the panel was, in fact, an hour, there is not very much new information that was released. So this is what we have. Barbara Gordon will be a woman just out of college in the pages of Batgirl. Now, this was later clarified, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, so we won't actually comment on this, but they, they commented on this to kind of clarify her age range on Sunday. Um, they also stated Barbara is struggling with her transition from Oracle to Batgirl. So that's clearly stating that Oracle was a persona that she was. Batwing's arch nemesis will be called Massacre. Batwing will appear as a soldier in Batman's army in the series. So that kind of keeps Batman incorporated in line with what's been going on too. Paul Jenkins will be co-writing Batman the Dark Knight with David Finch comments on that are, well, I'm glad that they finally got a co-writer and not just a co-artist. Agreed. Doubled. The extent of the changes caused by the relaunch will be bringing the characters back to their core and adding more villains to the mix. So, that's not very descriptive. I don't even bother commenting. Uh, Starfire's history with Dick Grayson has not been erased. Detective Nick Gage may appear in the new Batgirl series, but based on the fact that that's Gail Simone saying that. I'm I'm not very hopeful of that. Plans are being made as to what to do with Stephanie Brown and the DCNU, but the fact that that was the way it was worded means they don't actually have plans right now. I think it was more of uh, once everyone found out Stephanie wasn't going to be in the books and kind of the fans kind of crying out and saying, well, why isn't Steph in the book? She's been back and doing an amazing job. DC kind of went like, oh, crap, now now what do we do? Um, Jesus Christ. Batman Beyond will most likely return, which we were already under the assumption of. So that's it. Not a whole lot. So the next panel was on Friday, July 22nd, and it was the second day of the New 52 panels, 
And this is what we had. Dio stated that he pushed for Detective Comics to stick with its numbering, and his bosses pushed the idea that this would not be held as something besides a gimmick unless all the titles were renumbered. So that is why Detective Comics and Action Comics are both re being renumbered as well. Which I can understand that to a degree, but at the same point, I guess those bosses really don't care about legacy at all. Um, Justice League takes place five years in the past compared to what is occurring in the Bat Books. So that explains why we are hearing about Batman and the Justice League's first meeting. It makes a lot of sense when you think about it like that. Batman is portrayed as more of an urban legend in Justice League. He has... This will be something else we'll talk about a little bit later with one of the other panels, but I'm just going to say it now. Basically, the way they're saying is that Batman has been around for ten years according to the Bat Books. In that 10-year time frame, five years into Batman's career is when the Justice League forms. That's when Justice League's happening. Action Comics, which is going to have Superman in it, takes place six months prior to Justice League. So that's kind of the timeline of things. I don't know when exactly they're going to get back to current times. I honestly have no idea. and That doesn't make a lot of sense to me why we would have only two books that would... Fall into the past of everything, but at the same point, we're going to have all these other books taking place in, in current time. I don't know. And lastly, Stephanie Brown will be a part of the New 52, and Didio hinted that he is a huge spoiler fan. Whatever. <laughs> I, I, I guess this is. I guess every day is a different thing. Now we're on day three, and he went from. No idea what's going on with Stephanie to... We're looking into ideas for Stephanie in the books, and now we know that she will be in the New 52. This is the same guy who, whose idea was to kill off Stephanie Brown. This is the same guy who tried to kill Dick Grayson, and then we just talked down to that because, hey, it was a crappy idea. He said, oh, now I'm, now I'm a fan of Dick Grayson. <laughs> I'm sorry, his, his word's not worth crap when it's compared to this. The next panel we have is the Justice League panel. This also took place on Friday, July 22nd. Um... Most of the panel obviously was talking about Justice League, but there was a couple little things here and there that were related to Batman. So, Batman is actually not only in the Justice League, but also in the Justice League International. And that is because he acts as the liaison between the Justice League International and the Justice League. The His role in Justice League International is unsanctioned by the UN, which directs the entire team. Batman is the only member of the Justice League International that wears a mask and has a secret identity. Batman's timeline is largely unaffected by the new timeline and has been operating as Batman for many years before Superman makes the first appearance as the first superhero. That falls back into he's the urban legend. Nightwing is not in any of the Justice League teams because he's too much of a team player. <laughs> if that makes any sense, I, I don't... <laughs> I, know. I, missed the G I missed the Justice League panel, so I completely missed that. I'm hearing that for the first time. Um, and then finally, a group similar to the Legion of Doom will appear next year, so it won't be called Legion of Doom, but Jeff Johns mentioned that it, there will be a villain team that will form. All right, the next panel on J Saturday, July 23rd is day three of the New 52. And again, a little bit here and there. Scott Lobdell stated that fans will learn to love the new costume for Red Robin, Wings, and all. And they actually released some images online of the Wings a little bit more in detail. 
really hard to see exactly what's going on in the image that they released other than Tim's falling out of a building. He uh, hits a switch or talks into his mic and it looks like lightning bolts come down and his wings pop out. Shazam! <laughs> Honestly, that's what it looks like. <laughs> Detective Comics is going to be a collection of short stories. This was Tony Daniel who was saying that and we assume he meant one issue stories. But the uh, series will have a very serious tone. The Doll Maker is a new villain that will be introduced in Detective Comics. I'm sure that will not be the only one. The opening story in Batwing deals with the African Hero Brigade being hunted down. We don't even know who the African Hero Brigade is. So <laughs> that wasn't very helpful. Uh, Grant Morrison was on the panel and he stated that Cassandra Kane will appear in the, in the new DCNU which we can assume since it's Grant Morrison saying that and he's going to be running Batman Incorporated. She'll continue her role as Black Bat in Batman Incorporated and that's where she'll be probably for the in the only place she'll The rest be. of her life. <laughs> Morrison's story in Batman Incorporated will continue to ripple through the Bat books once it begins in January. So they stated that again for the second time. We'll, hold, we'll see how many times it actually takes for it to sink in. So that is the end of that panel. The final panel, which is on... Sunday, July 24th, the new 52 panel, day four. The last panel, and we would expect there to be some bigger news, a little bit more news than some of the other panels, specifically because Gail Simone was present and she talked a little bit more about Barbara Gordon, which I don't know why she didn't talk more about Barbara Gordon at any of the other ones, but maybe they were saving it for the end. We'll see. All right, so Gail Simone stated that Barbara Gordon is the smartest member of the Bad Family. Really? Okay. <laughs> she just graduated um, college, and Batman's been around for 10 years, but she's smarter than him. Makes sense to me. Feminist. Okay, so let's get into the college comments. Simone addressed that some of the earlier comments about Barbara's college career, and she stated that she has re received an advanced degree several years ahead of the average people. Okay, so this is what I get from that. That may explain the age difference and still keep history intact as far as the fact that she could be like 20, 24, 20, you know, anywhere from 22 to 24 years old and have like master's or a doctorate or something and still be young, which falls into what she said about, oh, well, she's very smart. You know, clearly if she's very smart, that means that she could have graduated college much sooner than everybody else. And in turn, received these doctorate degrees much quicker than anybody else could have at her age. That's that's what I got from that. Well, they're saying that that she graduated college much quicker than, and and it all at the same time saying that she's a correct me if I'm wrong, newly newly graduated college student. Then she's she's even younger than 24. She's like, okay, but here's the thing. Go so during that that first panel, they made the comments about her. You know how she is newly graduated from college. In this panel, it was specifically said that she had this college thing. It's she's out of college, but the problem is that she's dealing with the fact that because she's so much younger than most people who have the degrees that she has, she has a problem transitioning into like normal society, getting a job and such because she's so much younger. But they're not saying they, nobody ever stated how old she is. That's still <laughs> the problem that I see is so know, help, you, help. the killing joke would have to happen, and the killing joke would have to happen, and she would have had to be like 18, 19 years old. 
let's say she she went to college for the next three or four years, got all these degrees, and in that same time frame she was Oracle. That's fine. Clearly there's going to be some certain issues as far as like her being Oracle and being a college professor for Stephanie Brown, but that might just be wiped out completely. Who knows? I guess my problem is that they said that they we're not going to find out how history makes sense. And with the Bat books not being affected as much, the attention is going to be drawn to Batgirl specifically because her life is going to change so dramatically in a matter of one month. We're going to see her in Birds of Prey. We may see her in Batgirl. And the next month she's going to be swinging around buildings of Gotham City as Batgirl and we're not going to know how it happened. And we're not going to know for you know who knows how long. And I think that's going to be something that's really going to piss people off it already and has. Come come uh, New York Comic Con, DC is going to be there and hold a panel, and a lot of questions are going to be like related to. So, can you explain how this went from this to this one to this? Because you haven't explained it in two months, and we're not people who want to sit here and just enjoy a story without thinking about how we got to this point. Okay, well, let's think about like the history for a second. So originally. The Killing Joke happened, Jason Todd is Robin, then right after The Killing Joke, Robin is killed by the Joker. And then soon after that, Tim Drake becomes Robin at, at, at age 13, 14. Tim Drake is now 17, which is four years, which is already much of the, the new DC history. So that means that Dick Grayson, who became Robin in the post-crisis continuity at age 12, and is now at least, at the very least, 24, 26, that means he must have aged astronomically Barbara Gordon was still being a teenager or whatever and going through college. I mean, they can they can de-age her and say that she's a college graduate and all this. It still doesn't add up when you when you add it to the history of the other characters. No, because you could do it like this. We could have a, probably a whole discussion about the timeline and how this is going to work, and but that might be better suited once we actually have a little bit more information. But so there's ten years. Let's say that in that ten year time frame, Dick Grayson becomes Robin at year four. Okay. And then, at year five, Barbara Gordon becomes Batgirl, okay? So then, we wait another year. At year six, Dick Grayson becomes Nightwing, and so, Jason Todd becomes Robin. So Dick was Nightwing six. for two years, essentially. Yes. No, he was, he was Robin for two years, yes. Jason Todd becomes Robin at year six. But that only lasts, let's say, six months we can even we can make it a year. That's fine. Seven years we're at. Okay, so we're at year seven. Jason Todd's dead. Tim Drake becomes Robin. Tim Drake's been Robin for three years, so that could put him at sixteen years old. So we're only about a year off. That's not that bad. No, it's and then bad. At the same time, <laughs> I disagree. But you're not saying why you disagree. I disagree because there's so many things that have happened since then. Like like ideally, Robin. Dick Grayson being Robin two years doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense because everything that they say, they made a point to say that most, if not all, Batman stories are still in continuity. If they are still in continuity, then time has had to have passed, and it can't just be pigeonholed in a, sp- a time span of a few years. Okay, but how many giant uh, Dick Grayson Robin stories are there that really are held up to continuity when it when compared to? The timelines of things. All the stories where Dick says, "I was, I was uh, living with you for like, like five, six, seven years." Okay, that's not, that's not an actual, that's not an actual story. That's just basically him saying, "I was living for you with this long." 
Well, here's the thing, though. Okay, you're basically okay. taking a panel where Dick says a, a quote, and you're 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 making that as this is how continuity has to be because some writer said this at some point. Okay, well, well, look at it this way. Tim Drake was he has to have be a certain age because he met Dick Grayson, you know, Lonely Place to Die and all that. So like, he would have to be aged up, obviously, for him to be Robin in time for this to match up. So that would put okay, but like, that's like, all, but according to the timeline I just created, he was ten years old when he met Dick Grayson. And Dick Grayson is, I mean, he would be if he's uh, if he's Robin for two years and he's Nightwing, two if he's Robin for two years and he's Nightwing automatically, then that would be that mean he'd met Dick Grayson like we're talking like uh, 15, 16? No, because how old are you saying Dick Grayson is? Because I'm saying that uh, Dick Grayson has been Robin. He was Robin for two years, and he's been Nightwing for four. So he's been Nightwing. For, he's been he led the Titans as Rob. Led the Titans as Robin. Led the Titans as Nightwing. Went to Bloodhaven as Nightwing. Led the Outsiders as Nightwing with Batman. I mean, I mean, if they if they hash it out and, and pigeonhole it and that everything happened in a month or whatever, I suppose it would work. But right now, that, this is seriously giving me an aneurysm. Like, like all right, so let's continue. <laughs> Alright, Simone also names some villains set to appear in the series, including the previously mentioned Mir and a group called the Brisby Killers. James Gordon and Batman will play roles in Batgirl along with another unnamed family member. I We would assume it's James Gordon Jr., but we it may not. Be, it could be somebody completely different. Dick Grayson will have a large role in Barbara's life. Uh, at this point, because Gail Simone's writing the book, we can assume it'll be a romantic interest. Simone also stated that Barbara has to deal with the fact that she was disabled and now is not. So we'll see how that pans out. Uh, some of Gotham City Sirens may appear in Batgirl. And finally, Dan DiDio mentioned that he was not allowed to talk about Batman Beyond, but did mention a riddle. You will be three times happier than you are now, so we can assume that we will not only be seeing Batman Beyond, but also possibly two other series based on the Beyond universe. And I would assume it would be a Superman Beyond as well as a Justice League Beyond. They did announce Justice League Beyond, right? I think. Justice League Beyond and Superman Beyond? I think they did. I know they announced Superman Beyond. Yeah, they just announced Superman Beyond. <laughs> There's a, um, a Superman Beyond one-shot coming up soon, isn't there? Yeah, and that's what they're. That's what I'm assuming he's he was referencing. Yeah. So that is all of the things. Now, clearly, there's going to be a lot of discussions between now and September and after September about how this is all going to work out. So it would be really nice if we could get Mike Martz on the telephone and call him up and say, Hey, Mike, can you kind of lay this out so we can get an idea of exactly how this all works so certain fans like Don and Josh, who are convinced that continuity is going to be absolutely ruined by this this uh, relaunch, or not nece- maybe not necessarily ruined, but not very well managed as far as uh, the events that have occurred in time. Now, um, either way, um, it would be nice. Maybe we'll uh, we'll attempt to do that after the relaunch because I doubt they'll be telling us anything before the relaunch. But uh, maybe we can get Mike Martz back on and do an interview with him. That'd be great. Answer some questions. So with that, we uh, the last bit of news we have is actually an audio interview. I had the chance to interview Scott Snyder, and we talked about not only his work on Detective Comics, what we can expect in this last month before the relaunch, but also what we can expect with Batman. And I gotta say, this was a pretty decent interview, and we got a lot of information from him. And it's not just the same stuff you've heard in every other interview, because we know how that works with 
the DC promotion wheel. It all just seems like it's the same stuff no matter where you go. But we did get a little bit of bits and information about some of the villains that we'll be seeing in uh, Batman, as well as the uh, the actual thing that he keeps talking about, the Stone Eye of Gotham City. Here with the BatmanUniverse.net, and I have with me Scott Snyder. Now, not only is Scott Snyder writing detective comics and working with Gates of Gotham and going to be doing Batman in September, but he also just won an Eisner last night for American Vampires, so congratulations. Oh, thanks, man. That was a dream come true. We were, like, over the moon all night long. I want to, like, Raphael was like, I'm going to hang it on my tag like this and make a necklace, and I was like, don't do that, don't do that. But no, we're, we're thrilled. Thanks to everybody for reading us. It means the world. We really appreciate it. Well, you're doing a great job. So first off, Detective Comics is coming to an end next month. We've got some great issues, big reveals happening just in the last couple weeks. Amazing stuff. What, what can you say about just the experience has been working on Detective Comics? Oh man, it's been a dream run. Jock and Francesco and Dave Barron, the colorist, they become some of my best friends in comics. I just love them to death. And really, the idea is that they this is the ending we've been building towards since the very, very beginning. We planned on ending in September. They gave us a double ship for August. The final issue, the next issue is 880, big one with Jock, the Joker, comes out this week. And in August 10th, the big double-sized finale, 15 pages by Jock, 15 pages by Francesco, the bridge where James Jr. was, you know, almost killed as a baby, all kinds of stuff. The Joker, it's the finale we've been building towards since issue one. So I'm so grateful to DC for letting us tell the entire story the way we wanted to tell it from the beginning. It's, It really is, I feel like, the luckiest guy. It's just a dream run everything about it so thanks to everybody reading it I promise the last panel and the entire thing I think is our most twisted creepiest thing in the entire series so check us out to the end we really really are excited and proud of the ending that's saying a lot because there's been a lot of creepy and twisted things so next up uh, you know September's big month for DC Comics in general uh, we've been told over and over again Batman universe isn't going to be affected as much as everything else for the most part you're going to be on Batman so you're not going to be on Detective Comics anymore, but you're going to be writing Batman. So, you're teaming up with Greg Capula. What can you tell us a little bit about Batman? We know you can't say a whole lot, but... I can tell you some stuff now, or before they stop me. (laughs) But the idea is that this is a Batman story I pitched a little bit a while ago, maybe six months ago, to Mike Martzing. I have this idea for a Bruce story. It's about Batman having gotten comfortable in Gotham. He thinks of it as his oldest friend. Alright? But... Gotham is 300 years old. He's been Batman for a short period of time, comparatively, you know, to that. What if Gotham, and he thinks of it as the city of the bat, you know, a lot of people think of it that way. But what if there's a symbol that predates the bat long, long ago, an ancient enemy of the Wayne family, and, you know, a dark force in Gotham that's been there from the very, very beginning. Um, And now suddenly Gotham kind of turns its big stone eye towards Bruce and thinks, I just haven't been paying attention to you. You don't know Gotham at all. Now I'm going to crush you. And so it brings all of the history to bear against Bruce right now. There'll be reveals about the history of the Wayne family, like status quo changing reveals about the Grayson family, about the Drakes and the Cobblepots and all that stuff. It'll build on stuff we did in Gates and Detective, although you don't have to read those things to enjoy it at all. And it will really come to a big war for Gotham's soul, like an epic, ambitious Batman story, you know, for us. And Greg Capullo is killing it. Greg Capullo is, like, turning in the work of his career. I couldn't be prouder and feel luckier to work with him. Well, we're really looking forward to it. Now, one thing I have to say is you said, you, I, you've said in other interviews, you just said it now, Gotham's kind of turning its stone eye towards him. So we are... 
in a way, is it the history of Gotham? I just want to confirm, is it the history of Gotham, or is it actually Gotham City itself is becoming like an element that Batman has to deal with? Well, I always like to keep it. I mean, it's not that Gotham City is a supernatural element. It's more that Gotham is a place that seems to have this kind of dark quality to it, where it sends you back these challenges that really bring your nightmares to life. That's the premise of Detective. And here, what I was thinking of is, there in Detective, it's really about, you know, Dick is a new Batman, so these are new villains. It, the city transforms itself to challenge him in ways that are appropriate to him. Here, it's almost like Bruce is comfortable and thinks of the city as, as its home, so it's going to reveal a secret past to show him, this isn't your home, you don't know anything about me, and I'm gonna now I'm going to bring you villains you haven't even seen yet that are going to be the toughest guys you ever face. We're going to crush the entire Bat family. That's the way Gotham, you know, is. So it never is actually like a city talking or a city with, like, magic, but it has that quality that it does go beyond sort of the rational somehow in, in the ways that it challenges its heroes as a kind of twisted mirror to them, you know? Okay, then you mentioned new villains. We've, we've heard about a number of different things with the solicitations. Uh, on the cover of Batman 1, you know, we, we're seeing a group of villains, most of them we've seen before, some of them we haven't. Professor Pig's on the cover. I know a lot of people are interested in seeing Professor Pig come back. Can we get some clarification? Who's the guy in the sack on the cover? Is that Scarecrow? Oh, it is. It is Scarecrow, yes. What we wanted to do is just show you that we love the history of Batman as much as you do. Characters from the most recent runs, there will be a James Jr. cameo in Batman 1. There will be a Professor Pig cameo. You'll see Two-Face and Scarecrow. You'll see Dick, Tim, Damien all together with Bruce in the same dynamic Bat family-wise that existed before. I just want to show you that, yes, this is a Batman that looks fresh different look, high tech, you know, really sort of, you know, uh, really sort of almost a Batman kind of 2.0 in terms of the way it looks with Greg's art because it's so dynamic and cool. But all the stories that you love, all the history that you love is there. It's all there. It exists in the Batman universe. It exists behind Bruce. None of it's been altered. None of it's been changed. None of us have any interest in just wiping out Bruce's history and all the stories that made me want to write Batman, you know? So they're there. I wanted to make an effort to show you the those things, even just in the villains that way, that in Arkham, all the villains you love are there. And I think fans are really looking forward to that, and I think the biggest thing is that, you know, the bad books is something that if you've been enjoying them, you're going to continue to enjoy them, and if you're a new reader, you're going to enjoy them too. You said it better than I could. It's exactly what I would say. Alright, thanks a lot, Scott. We appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks to Batman Universe. You guys are great. I really appreciate the support. Alright, so that was that interview with Scott Snyder. Clearly, he's excited about what's to come, and based on what he's been doing in Detective Comics, I've got to say I'm I'm pretty excited to see what he's going to be doing in Batman. I have full faith in what he's been doing in Detective Comics, and that means I'll be having I'll be putting my faith in him for Batman, which in some sense I can't say the same about a lot of the other books that are coming on. Some books I am excited for. Nightwing is one of them. Birds of Prey, despite the fact that Birds of Prey gets a horrible reputation based on everything that's been done. Over the past couple years with Birds of Prey, the writer on the on the series really interests me just because he's more of a novel writer, and that reminds me of in in some sense Greg Rucka and Greg Rucka knew how to write. Those series interest me. I, I have not so much faith in some of the other ones, and I'm going to mention them, but some of the other ones I don't have as much faith in. But I'm definitely looking forward to Batman, as I'm sure it will be just as good as Detective Comics. I'm definitely looking forward to Batman. There's no reason not to. 
I'm looking forward to uh, picking up Batman and Robin because I want to see Bruce and Damien work together. Nightwing, definitely. Dick Grayson doing what he does best as his own as his own character. And I wish I could say Batgirl, but so much of it is, is annoying me. I'll, I'll pick up the first issue just to see if it uh just 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 to see what happens. But that's the one I'm looking forward to the least. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same as you guys. I'm also I'm going to be picking up the first issues definitely of um of the Dark Knight just because. I'm sort of I'm starting to get interested now in the uh, the story of it, but it's going to be good to have a a decent writer behind it, and also Red Hood and the Outlaws, just because the idea of it's kind of intriguing. But uh, whether I'll enjoy them or not remains to be seen. Either way, September's right around the corner. We still have at least two more podcasts before we actually get into the September issues, and we may actually try to. There's no promises as of right now, but we're going to try to wrap August up so that we have a po- when we have the the newest podcast, whatever it may be, we start fresh with September issues. So however that ends up working out, where we do an extra one or we have an episode that's a little bit longer because we have a lot of reviews to try to make sure that that happens. I really want that to happen to kind of group the new, new releases into the stuff. We're also going to be reviewing uh, Flashpoint number five, as well as Justice League number one on that first podcast as well, just because it needs to. It, those those issues play too much of a role in what's going on. Even if it's not necessarily in the Batman books, we need to cover those just for the DC relaunch aspect. All right, so with that, let's get into our comic reviews. We've got eight books to cover and. Not a whole lot of time, considering as we, we talked a little bit about the news more than uh, more than usual. But we're not going to skimp on the reviews. So first up, we've got Batman and Robin number 25, written by Judd Winnick, art by Greg Tuccini. You mean this lockup nut is the security creep from Arkham? Without a doubt. Another fine villain made possible by a grant from the Wayne Foundation. Only kidding. Now this picks up where the last two issues of the story arc left off, where we see Batman and Robin driving Red Hood towards the uh, situation where Scarlet's being held hostage by an unknown kidnapper, I guess you could call her. At some point, the flying Batmobile, the uh, Red Hood decides that he's going to shatter the, the windshield of sorts and kind of come down to the Thomas Wayne Middle School, where... Interesting enough, uh, Judd Winnick points out that he went to school himself. This person who's kidnapped Scarlet, she essentially says, uh, you need to strip down and drop all your weapons. So he strips down and drops all his weapons. He's scanned. He doesn't have anything. Uh, Moving forward, Scarlet says, you know, why did you, you know, what's going to happen to you? Why are you treating me for yourself that's stupid and then out of nowhere batman and robin appear the, the the chick is pretty pissed about it because she finds out that uh, jason todd has basically screwed her over uh we come to find out that batman dick grayson doesn't want jason todd to kill anybody um there's a bunch of fights red hood ends up taking scarlet and escaping by themselves and uh, Batman and Robin go to chase Jason Todd, but are forced to make a choice between chasing him or saving innocent lives. The issue essentially ends with Jason Todd and Scarlet saying that they're going to go work together. We'll see how that works out when Red Hood is not by himself, but with other people in September. 
So that's Batman and Robin number 25. Overall, this issue moved very quickly. It wasn't amazing. It definitely, definitely was not amazing. The problem that I have with this is that we know that Red Hood's going to be having a team, so to say that Scarlet's going to stay with him is basically said, well, so much for Scarlet, she is not going to be around, because I'm sure she's not going to be a sidekick, you know, following Jason Todd around in the pages of Red Hood and the Outlaws, Most, mostly because it would make no sense, because she, she's like the complete opposite of what Jason Todd really is. Yeah, she's kind of homicidal, but at the same time, she doesn't have a whole lot of you know the needs and desires that Jason Todd has so with that the art is kind of distracting just because the the faces are a little bit scratchy and I don't I don't really like that and that's not my my cup of tea as far as art but overall it wasn't horrible I'm gonna give it two out of five batterings I read a really hard time coming positive on this issue because Jason Todd three-parter in Batman Robin was a, one of the worst lies I've ever been I've ever been fed in DC Comics recently. Just because every cover looked like it was going to have a showdown between Dick Grayson and Jason Todd. You know, former Robins, former and current Robin against the you know the bad boy Robin, and it's just like we need to help Jason Todd find uh, Scarlet, so save her from people we don't know or care about. And it was more of the same. I mean, like the art was inconsistent first of all because the artists change every single issue, and on the last few pages, Batman, look, Dick, Gray, Dick Grayson looks roided as all heck. I mean, the situation wasn't like it wasn't like a horrible writing. It wasn't like there was any plot holes or anything, but it was just really uninteresting and really unengaging because when you look at a cover that see Batman and Robin fighting Red Hood, i.e. Jason Todd, that's what you expect to see. And the fact that it's completely different and it's just, oh, we need a search and rescue mission with Jason Todd, that's just, that's a bold-faced lie, and it's a very uninteresting comic, so I don't have much to say about the actual content, because it didn't interest me. I'm just really, really burned on the fact that it was just one big premise that was non-existent. One out of five batterings. I don't know what it was, but I thought this issue was so much better than the other two, like, in the arc, and I actually ended up kind of enjoying it. Maybe just as a comparison, maybe just because I like the issue. I really like Tuccini's art until Smith ruined it in the last few pages by what looked like the Hulk in a bat suit. I thought the relationship between the trio in the Batmobile especially was written really well. I mean, it was funny, and it, the issue was action-packed and stuff. I'm a little disappointed after reading this issue that Scarlet probably won't be around after the relaunch. The only um, sort of error... I'm not sure if it was an error or not, the problem I had was when Jason Todd shot his way out the Batmobile because even at point blank range, I'm pretty sure that would be bulletproof. <laughs> even from the inside, <laughs> at least it wouldn't shatter. Excellent point. <laughs> so, but I was surprised how much I enjoyed this, and I'm actually going to give it four out of five batterings. All right, and over on the website, Melinda gave it three out of five batterings. So that is going to give the issue two and a half out of five bad ranks. Let's move into our next issue, Batman Beyond, number seven. Drift angle, zero three to starboard. Roger. Correcting to port. Batman Beyond, issue seven, written by Adam Beechin, with art by Ryan Benjamin. 
The issue opens up exactly where the last one left off, with Blight's hands clamped firmly around Batman's head. To escape, Batman punctures Blight's suit with a batarang, forcing him to retreat and fix the suit before his body decomposes itself. We cut to Dana, who opens her front door to find the police dropping off her brother after questioning him, as he was a bystander to a robbery. Dana also questions her brother, who we find out is lying about taking his medication, but he believes himself to be okay because when he went to see the Jokers gang, he didn't feel the need to join them. As Terry returns to the Batcave, we learn that Bruce has just bought the majority shares in Wayne Powers Industries. Aware that Blight will want to kill Bruce Wayne for this, Batman waits for him. We then cut to Max in a mall, meeting with a member of Undercloud, the cyberspace criminal network who attempted to recruit her a few issues back. Max is interested in their offer, but she learns that she must first pass an entrance exam. At Wayne Powers Industries, Bruce is visited by Godfrey, who begins to threaten Bruce, but through loopholes, Bruce turns it around, getting the protesters to leave and forcing Godfrey to leave the city. In the meantime, Batman attacks Blight as he's making his way into Wayne Manor. Once again, Terry damages Blight's suit and essentially kills him as his suit explodes and the ooze that was once Blight is scattered and lost everywhere. The end. Alright, so Batman Beyond number seven. I think the good thing about this issue was the whole behind-the-scenes Bruce Wayne buying all the stock and kind of retaking the company that you know is truly his. I think the cop-out of this issue was the whole Blight versus Terry McGinnis because Blight is really supposed to be the villain for Batman Beyond Terry McGinnis. And these two issues really did not achieve that. And what we're left with is we know that in August is going to be the last issue of Batman Beyond, at least for the foreseeable future. And because of that, um, you would think that they could have tied it up where it could have been a little bit longer of a story, a little bit more of a battle between the two because of Blight's history with Terry McGinnis as a character. And we didn't really see that with this. It was really just, oh, let's uh, let's fight each other. And uh, Terry throws out a couple little comments about how horrible Blight is, but it, it just... It didn't feel it didn't feel right, and the really the highlight of this issue for me was Bruce Wayne, you know, not only buying back all of uh, Wayne Powers and changing the name to the of the company, but also you know, kind of figuring out how to undo everything that there was the problem with the labor strike as well. That was more interesting to me than anything else in the issue, which is sad because the book's not called Bruce Beyond, it's called Batman Beyond, and I find that to be a slight of a problem. So for this one, I'm going to give two and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, after the last issue, I found this to be a little bit of a letdown. I think that the way it ended last issue, and like especially the cover, which is gorgeous by Dustin Nguyen, felt as though it was really, really going towards a uh, more of a Terry-centric uh, blight a Batman uh, face-off, and it kind of just got bogged down by the, all the other subplots. And Terry, I don't want to say one-shots him, but kind of like deals with them fairly handily near the end. I like the fact that they are having Bruce sort of like take back his company, because I, I actually kind of find that interesting, because it was a big point that he lost his company in the uh, interim between the present time and the future. But mostly, I kind of wanted, again, just like Batman and Robin, I kind of wanted this issue to be be more than it was, and it wasn't. It wasn't as infuriating or even bad as Batman and Robin, but still, my interest wasn't really attained. So I'll give this two and a half out of five batterings. 
I'd say an okay issue overall. I find the art inconsistent, but overall enjoyable. I found the plot with Bruce and the company confusing, but maybe that's because I don't really have the knowledge of the business world, which you may need to understand it. Uh, I find the side plot of Dana and her brother unconnected and uninteresting. I find the side plot of Max and the Undercloud forced and quite rushed. And the rest of the issue was just a massive fight between Blight and Batman. Um, I also thought that Batman seemed to kill Blight at the end, which I, th I just thought was a bit odd. And the way Bruce just sort of waved it off. I mean, maybe he didn't. And but that definitely seemed um, out of character and just didn't quite fit in any form of Bat book. So I'm going to give this 2 out of 5 batteries. Alright, so that's going to give Batman Beyond number 7 two and a half out of five patterns. Let's move into our next issue, which is background number 23. I know you work for Riddle. Don't, don't, don't hurt me. I'll tell you everything. These challenges are beyond mine, such as your Let them go, Riddler. They're innocent. You may as well just turn back down. <laughs> Do you admit that I am smarter than a bat? Written by Brian K. Miller, illustrated by Pere Perez. At Gotham Central, the police on duty are ambushed and attacked by various members of the Reapers and robotic armor. The fighters abscond with Harmony and Slipstream's armor suits. We then cut to a murder scene where we see the body of the Grey Ghost. Batgirl and Detective Gage are both at each other's throats, clearly, clearly disturbed by the Grey Ghost's death. Gage reveals that in college, he joined up with the Reapers, but after his fiancée was killed during a botched bank robbery, he swore to stay on the straight and narrow since then. He then gives Batgirl a recorded transmission from the Grey Ghost, who says that the Reapers stole money and DNA used to give them superpowers. We then learn that the Reapers are attempting to break out Harmony and Slipstream at Blackgate Prison. Gage and Batgirl helicopter in and Batgirl tells Gage to call up Barbara once everything's over. Batgirl races through the riot and quickly gets overtaken by the Armored Reapers. Once revealing what they're after, Stephanie yells out, Shazam! and is saved by Stargirl, Bombshell, Miss Martian, and Supergirl. The five quickly beat the living crap out of every Reaper at the prison, and Stephanie runs to find out who the mystery client is that the Reapers were intending to kill. She kicks down the, the only closed door to find her father, Clue Master, waiting for her to be concluded. All right, back row number 23. I thought this was almost almost perfect. Um, I say that because of a couple things. One, we uh, Stephanie's been working very well when she teams up with other characters, and clearly she's teaming up with all of the younger teenage DC heroes that she could in this issue, and it, and it worked, and it made sense because she, there's no way that she could have taken down all of the Reapers by herself. She had a hard enough time taking them down one by one. I think the, the best part about this issue is the reveal at the end where we find out Clue Master is not, in fact, dead and the fact that he is fully aware that she is Batgirl. And it'd be interesting to know if this actually plays into something that has to do with the new DC universe. I'm, I don't know at this point, but it could be interesting just because if Clue Master is able to figure out her identity, despite the fact that it is, in fact, his daughter... Could other villains, and that's why she is no longer Batgirl, we'll see. 
I did like the fact that you know the Reaper thing is as long as it seemed to to go on because of the one issue one story issues that were popping up here and there as because it seemed like the story went for as long as it did I'm glad to see that it actually got properly concluded as, at least in the fact that the, the story had some kind of conclusion I'm not sure what to expect from the next issue um I'm hoping it's not just like a swan song, hey, everybody, goodbye. Because um, the reveal at the end of this issue w was good enough to end a series on, and it could have... I just hope that the series can end on a higher note than this issue. So, uh, Batgirl 23, 4 out of 5 batterings. Now, I like this issue, but I found it really confusing when I first cracked it open after I came home from the shop. I, I mean... I assume this this has to take place after the upcoming uh, Batman Inc. issue where Batman and Batgirl team up in the UK. Because, like, they mentioned that she's coming back from a trip. Uh, Gage is like, where were you? And she says, I had to go. Um, I had to listen to somebody. And he says, well, you didn't have to listen to somebody. She says, yes, this person I did. And all of a sudden, Grey Ghost is dead in the front, uh, not the front page, but like the title page. So there's a serious sense of, like, okay, what's going on? And I felt that when I was initially reading it, it was a little hard to keep up. Uh, rereading it again, it was actually it was uh, still kind of confusing, but you can get get a sense of what was going on if you look at it closely. Like, especially with the recorded uh, transmission that Grey Ghost left. But generally, I, I, I really did like this issue. I, li I like the fact that it was actually a kind of a tonal shift, which appropriated the situation. A lot of these issues with ba a lot of Batgirl's story has been pretty light and fair, um, but this one felt serious, and I was actually. As dumb as this may sound, I was really concerned for Stephanie's mortality because when she says goodbye to Gage on the helicopter, it's it's, it's a very much like a okay, I might I might not make out of this uh, mission alive sort of uh, dealio. So you really wonder, especially after she got beat up by the Reapers almost immediately. I was really wondering if she was going to die in this. So I like the fact that she called on her buddies to help bail her out, and the reveal at the end totally gobsmacked me. It really did. Like I also thought Clue Master was dead. And since that he's a very classic Chuck Dixon era Batman villain, always going up against Robin and Stephanie, I can't wait to see how the rest of the the, the series ends from here. Four and a half out of five batterings. Really enjoyable issue with great art by Pear Perez. I thought the issue was really funny as usual, so I always really enjoy picking out this book, and it, it's one of my favorites of all of the Bat titles. And we got that big teen girl sort of sidekick team up at the end which was was really cool to see and I wouldn't be surprised if that now is the new home for spoiler if you know because Stephanie Brown if she is going to be in this new 52 then well not the 52 but in the DC new then that might be her place and it would be kind of cool to see her in that I think unfortunately I'm not too familiar with the history of Stephanie Brown so like although you know, the the last panel was cool for me. I definitely didn't get the... It didn't have the same impact on me as it did for, I'm sure, the other two co-hosts on this podcast and a lot of other readers. But, I, you know, interesting nonetheless. So I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give back row number 23 four out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to bring us to our next review, which is Flashpoint Batman Night of Vengeance number two. Help me! <laughs> so, Batman, 
here for the cops. Or me. I was only here for the hostages. But now, I'm taking you down too. <laughs> Flashpoint Batman Night of Vengeance number two, written by Brian Azzarello with art by Eduardo Riso. The issue opens up with Jim Gordon on the phone to Oswald Coppelbot. Concerned that he is letting Thomas Wayne down after Thomas asked him, if you could change the world, would you do it? This is, of course, a reference to Batman's role in Flashpoint, but Jim takes it to mean that he isn't doing enough in the fight against crime. To prove himself, Jim visits Oracle, Selina Kyle, without informing Thomas. Oracle has a lead on the Joker, and when investigating it, Jim receives a phone call from Thomas, but he lies and sends Thomas off to investigate on his own. On his patrol, Batman finds some information that links to Oracle's lead. When Batman mentions this to Oracle, she's surprised that Batman doesn't know it already, hearing it from Jim. Realising what's going on, Batman rushes to stop Jim. Meanwhile, Jim Gordon arrived at Wayne Manor and is creeping through the derelict building. Peering through a doorway, Jim spies the Joker, aiming two guns at the head of one of the dense children. As he bursts in and shoots the Joker through the head, we find out what happened to the other child, as it's not the Joker that Jim shoots, but the young girl dressed up to look like him. Rushing over to the body, Jim has his throat slit by the Joker, just as Batman bursts through the front doors of the manor, screaming, What have you done this time? Martha! As the Joker is revealed to be none other than Martha Wayne, to be continued. Okay, yeah. so that was an issue. Uh, Flashpoint, Batman, Night of Vengeance, number two. This was... Wow. All I have to say is, you know, I, I held off on reading uh, Flashpoint 2 and 3 for a while, and then Flashpoint, Night of Vengeance, number two came out, and I was like, okay, I'm going to read all of these, and I read them, and I read Night of Vengeance last, and wow. First of all, if you're not reading Flashpoint... Freaking amazing stories going on in the actual main main story for Flashpoint, but as well as the, some of the other miniseries that are coming out that aren't necessarily Batman-related also are telling amazing stories as well. And I've got to say, I just want to plug that because I'm not an events person. I can't stand events. I don't like... I didn't like Final Crisis. I didn't like Blackest Night. I didn't like Brightest Day over the past couple years for the events. But Flashpoint is really good, and... I'm glad that this is going to be the last event that's going to be happening in a while because one of the things Dan DiDio did say over the weekend was that with the New 52, they're concentrating on the stories and they have no plans for any events occurring in the foreseeable future. Now, that might be just a year, but for now, we won't be seeing any events. And I'm glad that this is the last event we're going to be seeing for a while because it's really good. That being said, the reveal at the end of the issue with the Joker being actually Martha Wayne Huge twist, never saw it coming, makes me eat my words from the last episode <laughs> that we, that we uh, reviewed Night of Vengeance number one about how I said, well, why do they have to use Heath Ledger's interpretation of the Joker? Can't they do something similar? Well, it turns out it wasn't Heath Ledger that they were using as an influence. It was a woman because the Joker's actually a woman and it's Martha Wayne. What better villain could a superhero have than his wife, who he lost a child with? I... That's freaking amazing writing right there. I never saw it coming, never even thought about it. And I it's not even that they like misled us and led us to believe that Martha Wayne was dead. They clearly stated that Bruce was the one who died way back in the day, and that's what they said. So the reality of it is 
they didn't mislead us at all. It was just we never saw that coming. I don't know who out there could have saw the twist like that coming. That was amazing. I hate to see Jim Gordon dead, but then again, we only have one more issue, and this is, in in fact, an alternate reality. So um, this was amazing. The art was was great. No complaints about the art. I'm not going to complain about uh, Edward Ariso, you know, ripping off the Joker from The Dark Knight anymore because clearly he had a whole another interpretation. So I don't ever, I don't do this very often, but five out of five batterings. <laughs> it just makes me all the sadder that you gave that glowing review because I was spoiled on the last on the last page on Facebook by a jerk who didn't care who saw his status. So the last. The, the, the huge twist of Martha being the Joker was completely spoiled, and I was incensed because that was, a, as you say, a terrific ending. Now, I read this uh, fairly recently, and uh, it's still stuck in my mind how how just pitch black dark this, this book is. But because it's an alternate reality and because of the situation, I love it because of that. I mean, I would actually feel uncomfortable with the amount of – with the tone of this book if it was in the main Batman book because – it is so uncompromising. I mean, and, it, and for one, it's different characters, really. I mean, this Jim Gordon here is not really the Jim Gordon of our, our known reality. But just, like, the convictions all these characters have and that uh, Thomas Wayne snaps that guy's neck who's uh, suffering from the Joker toxin. And just the Joker in herself, <laughs> Martha Wayne, oh, my God. Like, those, those last five pages were, they had me on such an edge. Because, first of all, I didn't see the... I should have seen the coming, but like the trick that the child was dressed up as the Joker that Jim shot, like that. Oh, good lord, it was that was intense. And then like the those last uh, several pages, it, this is this is what comics is all about. This right here, this is why we read comics. This is what got us into comics. This type of on edge, chilling, totally creative storytelling. Art was excellent. Writing was top notch. Robbery, if it's not five out of five batterings. Yeah, I think you heard how excited I was about this Jeremiah review. An absolutely awesome issue. And this proves that tie-ins and elsewhere titles can just be great stories. And I think it really makes Flashpoint worthwhile. And like Dustin said, it is a great story on its own. But having created this universe for this book to exist, it's, it's given it a whole new level of you know, worthwhileness, if that's a word. I was just thinking about, you know, in Flashpoint number two when um barry told thomas about this alternate timeline where bruce lives and he's dies maybe that's another reason why thomas is so adamant on helping barry get back to this correct timeline because in that universe martha wayne isn't the joker yeah well it's also the fact that you said you assumed that two people died but it's completely inverted because bruce was a sole survivor his parents died. Now his parents were the sole survivors. It's like yep. 100% inverted. Yeah, exactly. The only thing I didn't really like was sort of Selena as Oracle, but if that's explained, and it might turn out interesting. And Risa's art, I'm not the biggest fan of, but you know what, reading this, it just doesn't matter because like the overall story is just so good that I can overlook any sort of small issues I have with it. Because I think these are happening in continuity, like this story and Flashpoint, because of that line we had, if you could change the world, would you do it? Except in the Flashpoint title, Batman is living in Wayne Manor, 
and in Night of Vengeance, you appear to be living in like a penthouse suite above the casino. But like I said, it's just things like that you just put aside when you get to that ending, and like, I just it's so many things happened at once. It's like bang, shoots the kid. Wow, that's amazing. Like you can end there, and I'd be happy. Then Jim Gordon gets his throat slit, and it's like that's even cooler. Like, you know, one of the main protagonists of the title just died, and then that last thing at the end, it just really blows your mind. And now all I've got is this worry that it's gonna fall down in the last issue but I really hope it doesn't because this has been absolutely amazing this issue and this alone makes the whole of Flashpoint worthwhile I think and I just really hope that Azarello and Riso can pull it out of the bag for the last issue as well but this is a definite 5 out of 5 batterings. And one thing I do have to say is in regards to the, the comment Joe made about the different locations for where Thomas Wayne is I don't know that they actually ever showed Thomas Wayne living in Wayne Manor. I mean, they do show in Night of Vengeance a little bit more, Wayne Manor a little bit more abandoned and not really used. And they do show some things in Flashpoint with the crappy computer and, you know, they showed the library. But I don't know that they specifically said he lived there. But, again, that's such a minor thing in comparison to the in, the amazing storyline. So... <laughs> Nonetheless, amazing storyline, and are starting to hypothesize how the events of Flashpoint are leading into what's happening with the DC relaunch, because I'm, I'm starting to piece it together and starting to figure it out, and it's starting to make a little bit more sense, but that specifically has to do with me reading Flashpoint, the main series, and not the, the mini-series, but that'll be on the forums, so check that out. But for Flashpoint, Batman Night of Vengeance, number two, this book deserves it. Five out of five batterings overall. All right, let's move into our next book, which is Detective Comics number 879. Magnificent, isn't it? Written by Scott Snyder, art by Francesco Francavella. We start off with a little bit of a scene where we see somebody who is chained up in Arkham Asylum with a mask over its face talking to the doctor and kind of telling him a joke. At the same time, we see Jim Gordon talking to Leslie Tompkins about his son and about how he's working out. She has nothing but praise for him. We see Jim Gordon going to see Barbara Gordon in Court Tower. And I'll have to talk about this in the review recap. But she is in front of the computers in Court Tower. And Jim Gordon comes and sees her. Gives her one of the pills that James Gordon Jr. is on himself. And says he wants her to test it to see exactly what it is. Then cut back to Arkham Asylum, where the doctor continues to hear the, the story from the person who we f- later find out is in fact the Joker, and he ca- the Joker causes the doctor to get upset and causes the doctor to touch the Joker and in turn has a uh, chemical transferred through his skin and causes him to essentially be the Joker's henchman and take out the other guards in the room. Back in Cord Tower, Barbara is telling Jim that the pill is actually the exact opposite of what he was saying it was. It actually causes people to feel even less than what they could feel. And in turn, it feel, it seems as if James Jr. is actually making himself to be worse, or if that's even possible. Jim Gordon decides that he figures out exactly what the intent is, and he figures out that 
James is actually trying to put the pills into infant formula for children because that's one of his jobs for the Tompkins Clinic. Jim Gordon goes to James Gordon's room and finds a box, and inside the box is a bunch of keys, including, well, there's just, it's a box full of keys, which I'm assuming leads us to believe that this is the box of skeleton keys for a number of different things. Harvey Bullock comes to Jim Gordon at the same time and says, hey, we've got a problem, the Joker's out. And that is the end of Detective Comics 879. Alright, so a couple things about this issue. The art was really well. I, I really enjoy Francisco Francavella's art. It worked perfectly despite the fact that we never actually see James Gordon Jr. Except for, I think it was like maybe two pages during Jim Gordon's appearance at the Tompkins Clinic. And he's not portrayed as we've seen him in the past where, you know, he's very, he's that very creepy character. And because of that, the character himself, the art kind of plays off of uh, the Joker's creepiness and the fact that Joker's got this Hannibal Lecter mask on for his entire appearance in the book. And really, we don't even know who's behind the mask. I mean, we can assume who's behind the mask based on future solicitations, but not paying attention to those. You don't know who's behind the mask until that doctor gets taken over by the Joker Venom and has the Joker grin on his face. That's when we know that it's the Joker behind that mask. The mask makes it even more creepy than just drawing the Joker as a creepy villain. That was very, very well done. All right, so the problem that I have in with uh, the scene with Jim Gordon and Barbara is that Barbara's in Cord Tower. That's her hideout for the Birds of Prey. Now, there's the problem is that this would be under the assumption that Jim Gordon knows that Barbara is Oracle or she was Oracle or she was Batgirl or any of that. Now, we had a discussion about this and it, 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 and it seems that at some point this did happen, but it was never made very clear. And the issues of Birds of Prey where Barbara Gordon comes back to Gotham City as well as the issues of Batgirl... There's a very distinct difference of what Jim Gordon knows and what he doesn't know. And I think that, that this, is, this comes down to an editorial issue because when she came back to Gotham City after she was away in Platinum Flats in, during Birds of Prey, and she came back, Jim Gordon makes a point to say, oh, well, why are you coming back? You know, what's, what's here in Gotham that's not there somewhere else? And, you know, she doesn't really say, oh, well, because this is, makes more sense for me to be here because I'm going to fight crime. Why wouldn't she just say that? Why would Jim Gordon be asking that question? Exactly. If if that was something that was, they it was just a given, and they they both knew the situation. So, the that's that's the only problem. I think this is more of it's not Scott Snyder's fault for doing this because I'm sure he was aware of the situation that occurred where Jim Gordon did know. But I think over the past few years, the problem is that it has not been made clear that Jim Gordon knows in fact that Barbara Gordon is Oracle and was Batgirl. And I think that's the biggest problem because that would also have a big problem with, well, when you look at the other strew of characters within the Bat family, you know, not to say that Jim Gordon's an idiot, but if he figured out his daughter was Batgirl and he knows that his daughter is Oracle, it wouldn't take a lot of time before he could figure out who everybody else in the Bat family is. He is a detective in one of the most crime-ridden cities in the country, so I, I can't imagine... 
it being that difficult for him to figure out, unless he just doesn't care, which I, I don't know. I don't know that I would be, be able to be a detective and just not be able to think about something like that. But anyway, Detective Comics 879, good issue, not nearly as good as the last issue, and I'm sure it won't be as good as the, the forthcoming issues, but this is more of the setup of, you know, the end of the James Jr. story, and I think that's where this issue's kind of headed towards. So, uh, the art was great, the story was good. So with that, I'm going to give it three and a half out of five batterings. I like this story... And what I mainly like about it is that uh, I like how Jim and Barbara are written together. Now, Dustin was saying that it it is a weird thing in their history that Gordon knows about her extracurricular activities as Batgirl and now Oracle. So, I mean, it's very inconsistent with what Dustin said with what he does know or doesn't know. But I like the fact that you could potentially have in your head that he doesn't know that Barbara is Oracle or whatever and still go to her for help because this is a family matter they're dealing with. So, and this is also something we don't really see a lot. Barbara and Jim interacting, like, it goes outside of them just, you know, meeting up for coffee every Tuesday or whatever. I like that these two are, like, dealing with something that's th- this heavy, and Batman's not really in it. It's just the Gordons, and I-, I think that's really cool. I thought the art was excellent. I really loved how both Barbara and Jim were uh, drawn. In fact, the one thing I will say that I think sort of, like, detracts from this issue is that I think that the Joker doesn't really belong in this storyline. This was doing just fine with uh, James Gordon Jr., and I think that the Joker escaping after he just got put back in Arkham by Batman, Catwoman, and, and uh, Gotham City Sirens. And obviously, the continuity is always like uh, slippery there, but I think... I wish we were back in the days about six months ago where the Joker was sort of like hidden away for Grant Morrison to play with. And I, I'm not just suggesting that only Grant Morrison can write the Joker, but I wish that... He was saved from this story. I wish he wasn't in here. Because it does distract from the more, way more interesting storyline going on with James Jr. But nevertheless, I liked how... I just liked how this was written. Like, at first, you think that... You're along with Barbara that you think that Gordon's believing all of James's good deeds. And then he says, no, 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 I want you to test this pill. And, like, just a revelation of how crazy this character is. This story re- remains to be very engaging. So I'll give this a strong 4.5 out of 5 batterings. I thought this was a really great issue too. I liked the inclusion of the Joker and I think he's going to be, like Dustin said, playing a bigger role to come and I think I think Snyder will include him in a way that, that does aid the story, not just throwing him in just because, you know, he can. And I thought the way Frank Avia drew Joker's smile was really creepy and it's, you know, it's an interesting way. It's almost like splits the mouth and stuff. It's, and yeah kind of creepy like I said so the art was great the colouring was great as well and I even thought the lettering for Joker's speech was great it sort of and just that I don't know lowercase. Just, yeah and it's sort of sort of shaky and stuff it's almost like it was a childish kind of speech that's how I read it and it was it was really cool and I like how Gordon doesn't trust his own son and that leads into finding out about James Gordon Jr.'s plan and and that box full of all the keys and it I think the key he picks up is the one from a few issues back, the one with which was supposed to open is it the science kit? Yeah. Which was which was one of the first times that James ever really quest or Jim ever really questioned his son's sanity. So um I thought that was really cool linking it all back and I think that's what Stein has been doing, sort of 
he's been linking all these things back and it's kind of quite circular circular narrative and it's really cool so I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batterings and I can't wait to see what's coming next and, it's, and over on the website Dane gave the issue five out of five batterings said it's going to give the issue four and a half out of five batterings let's move into our next issue Batman the Dark Knight number three good boy Written and illustrated by David Finch, inked by Scott Williams, colored by Alex Sinclair. We begin where we left off in issue one with the Ragman monster about to prey on an innocent bystander. Suddenly, the demon intervenes, forcing quote-unquote Ragman to flee. The bystander breathes a sigh of relief, which ends up being his last as Etrigan inexplicably kills him. We then cut to see the girl who's stolen the Batmobile be caught by Alfred from the Batcave Monitor. After an odd scene with up-and-coming politician Forbes and Commissioner Gordon, we go back to Batman, still strapped to the bomb and talking to the Penguin via Skype monitor. Penguin reveals that he kidnapped Dawn Golden because she humiliated him at a social gathering, a la Veronica Vreeland from the Batman anime series episode Birds of a Feather. Essentially, he took her out and she, was, she and her friends went out with some very ugly people and that was a big gag to them. And that hurt uh, little Ozzy's feelings. Batman escapes the bomb explosion and finds Dawn in a room nearby unconscious. He saves her and returns to the Batmobile, now free of the child carjacker who flees down the street, wondering what to do. The issue ends with Penguin telling a mysterious man with green skin and a big smile that he needs to keep up with his end of the bargain. The man tells Penguin that he must open the gates of hell to be continued. Alright, Batman the Dark Knight number three. This was not worth the wait. I don't really have a whole lot of positive things to say because I found the issue to be really annoying. Um... <laughs> In such a short amount of pages, we get a lot of different story threads, and to me it just it doesn't make a lot of sense of why exactly we have to have as many threads going on. Who's the person who stole the Batmobile? What's the deal with that person? Why did she steal the Batmobile? Why is Batman so enthralled with the beauty of Dawn Golden that he's almost breathless when he sees her? I'm sorry, that's just stupid. You know, we've got the whole Ragman who's basically possessed by some demon uh same thing we've got etrigan the demon in the in the thing and he's not the normal etrigan the demon that he is we've got penguin working for somebody behind the scenes killer croc showing up i'm sorry there's just too much going on in such a short amount of story that condense the story down that's what needs to happen and if they don't do that with the relaunch of this book after only having i guess they're going to have five issues out before the relaunch if they don't condense the story and get rid of some of the excess, this story is so drowned in so many different threads that it's killing this story. You know, it's one thing for me to complain about the fact that, you know, Batman is enthralled with a chick for the gazillionth time because that happens in almost every non-continuity, but I guess this isn't continuity, issue series that happens. We saw that with Kevin Smith in more than one series. I don't understand why everybody has to have a female that Batman is like, oh my god, this is the most beautiful chick in the world. I can't move. Preach it. I feel butterflies in my stomach. It's stupid. Batman is this hardcore tough guy. I'm sorry, I cannot believe at any point in time that he would see some chick, no matter how gorgeous she is, and just, you know, suddenly is breathless. He, he can't even be around her without, like, getting completely nervous. That's complete... That's a line of bull. Batman, who in his alter ego is Bruce Wayne, 
and is a billionaire who has the hottest chicks in the world bending over backwards to want to be with the guy. I'm sorry, it's just not believable that Batman gets enthralled by some chick. It's just not going to happen, I'm sorry. I don't care how gorgeous she is, and despite the fact that, no offense David Finch, but she really wasn't that gorgeous if she was really being breathless, making Batman breathless. So, the story's just drowning, and the fact that it has two issues left to wrap up all of this stuff, and if it's not wrapping up and it's carrying over to the next one, that's going to get me even more pissed off about that book being relaunched, because right now, this book is the only book that I'm pissed about being relaunched. One out of five Batarangs. Two things that are consistent about this title. I really do love David Finch's art, but I do think that it, that help that is helped by. If you notice, I mentioned Scott Williams and Alex Sinclair in the credits because they worked on Hush with Jim Lee, and I really love their interpretation of Batman as well. I mean, they keep the art from becoming really, really hard edged and really, really rough, and I think that they're sort of like reining it in almost, and it looks good to me. I like the, a lot of the interpretations of these characters, except for the Penguin. Writing-wise, this is total polar opposites. Like Dustin said, I'm so sick and tired of being Batman being written like this broad-nosed, tough guy who, like, who... That's not how I was instructed on the character. For many, many years, most, pretty much all my life, I was led to believe that Batman is this very compli- uh, contemplative, three-steps-ahead kind of person who, you know, thinks before he walks in and uses his head more so than his fist because his fist do enough damage already. And the way Devin Fitch is writing him consistently, issue after issue, he's just this big bruiser in a cape. And though it does, maybe it doesn't come across as much in this issue, the line that she's, she's so breathless, like, it takes my breath away. Okay, I'm not going to say that Batman can never be attracted to a woman. But at the same time, him being distracted like that when there's a fire and he needs to save her life. I mean, I'll buy that from Nightwing. I'll buy that from Tim. Uh, I... I but like, I'm not, I can't buy it from Batman. There's no way I can buy it from Batman because it's Batman. Batman is cool. And Batman keeps his cool when he's saving people's lives. He doesn't He doesn't just stop and go, whenever there's a redhead unconscious right in front of him. Come on now. Get get, get it together. Two out of five Batarangs. Yeah, the art is unsurprisingly fantastic. Yeah, it's very stylized. But uh, some of the dialogue is just laughable. For example... I'm going to kill that backstabbing bird turd. And oh, yeah. granted, granted that is Killer Croc, so it, I'm going to hope that that's been simplified, possibly even stupefied for, for characterization, opposed to genuine gritty dialogue by David Finch. But it is not a bad thing that we're going to be getting a new writer for this. I mean, I don't think it's been mentioned enough, but that, I also think uh, Don touched on the inking and the colouring. I thought the lettering in this issue was really good as well, and I think it really adds to the story. And I, just, I don't think letterers get mentioned very much, but this was done by Dave Sharp, and I thought it was, you know, it just, um, I was looking, basically, I was looking for stuff to enjoy in the issue. I think that's probably what it was. But I, I thought the lettering was very good. And Overall, the story is still ridiculous, but I'm kind of along for the ride now. I'm not sure if it's got to that point where it's it's so bad it's kind of good for me. But I'm going to be I'm still going to be following this book up into the relaunch, and I'll probably, like I said earlier, I'll be picking it up to see how how this can be done competently, because I think 
the stylization that David Finch is going for is interesting to me because it's obviously it is a slightly different interpretation on these characters but if it, when that's paired with like I said a competent writer it might actually be something that I'd be interested in reading but I'm going to give this 3 out of 5 batterings alright and over on the website Melinda gave it 2 out of 5 batterings so that is going to give Batman the Dark Knight number 3 2 out of 5 batterings let's move into our next issue which is Birds of Prey number 14 Legend tells of a caped crusader, Batman, guardian of New Gotham, and his one true love, Catwoman, the queen of the criminal underworld. Their passion left behind something extraordinary. A daughter, Huntress, half metahuman, she has taken up her father's mantle and fights to protect the innocent and helpless. Joining her in this struggle, Oracle once Batman's protege, Batgirl. She was caught in the crossfire of the war between Batman and Joker. Now she fights crime a different way. A master of the cyber realms and trainer to heroes. Together they have taken in Dinah, a metahuman herself, with powers that she is only beginning to explore. These three are the protectors of New Gotham, the birds of prey. My name is Alfred Pennyworth, and this is their story. Birds of Prey, issue 14, written by Mark Andreco, with art by Billy Tusi. I know, not Gail Simone. Hooray. <laughs> and oh, art by Billy Tusi and Adriana Melo. When in doubt, throw in some Nazis should probably be the tagline for this issue. But the issue opens up with the birds and the original Phantom Lady attending a war veterans charity auction. When the Phantom Lady visits the Alzheimer's ward, one of the patients grabs her and when she leaves, the patient makes a phone call saying, The fates have smiled upon us. They are here. We cut to a restaurant where all of the birds and Phantom Lady are eating. Phantom Lady goes into the bathroom to powder her nose when she's attacked by a group of electrical Aryans. When Lady Blackhawk investigates her disappearance, she finds Phantom Lady's body smoking on the floor before she's also attacked, and when she wakes up, she and the Phantom Lady are both strapped into machines. All throughout the issue are these interwoven flashbacks set in 1950s, um, where Lady Blackhawk and Phantom Lady are in Argentina, looking for a Nazi scientist, when they are attacked by the Hitler Youth. In the present day, it turns out that the group that attacked the Juro are the grown-up Hitler Youth and the man who grabbed the arm of the Phantom Lady at the charity auction turns up saying, You will help us. Help us resurrect our creator and bring about a new Reich to be concluded. Birds of Prey number 14. I thought this was a, definitely a different take from what Gail Simone's been doing. I really enjoyed Billy Tucci's art. I've read some other comics that aren't Batman-related like his Sergeant Rock stuff, really great stuff. Uh, Billy Tucci really knows how to do the war stuff and to involve, I guess, the Nazis slash, you know, World War II type elements. That's really what Billy Tucci does really well. So I can see why the story, they, they at least got Billy Tucci for this story. It is interesting because it's kind of showing the generations of the Birds of Prey in, in some sense, even though they weren't known as the Birds of Prey back during World War II, there was still a group of characters that were part of the Justice Society of America that were also very similar to the Birds of Prey if they were to go off on their own like is depicted in this story. 
I know that this 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 happened specifically because Gail Simone ended her run on Birds of Prey last month, and there was going to be a break between any more of her books, with uh, at least in the Batman universe, until September when she took over Batgirl, and Mark and Draco, who we know specifically from his backup story with Kate Spencer, the Manhunter which has been quite some time since that that has actually occurred and kind of derived away from uh, Manhunter for a while, but we see that not only does he bring Manhunter back, but he also has a couple of other characters from the Birds of Prey that we haven't seen in a while as well. I think that's kind of interesting because, for the most part, it's been very, very stuck on the same characters, and we haven't really seen any other ones. But this was a good issue. I look forward to the conclusion of this story but I'm not holding my breath so I'm going to give it two and a half out of five bad rings I try not to be so negative with this title because it's ending and you want you know you always speak well you should speak well of the dead essentially it wasn't as irritating as it has been with like the sex and the violence and stuff but I don't know maybe it's just the, the blanket idea of using Nazis as villains just seems so that just seems so schlock to me that it's like it, it seems like it's, it's so totally bereft of ideas in the point of, like, exploitation. Especially when, at, at the conclusion, you are going to help us create another third Reich. <laughs> and when Joe sent his recap, Electrical Aryans, I facebombed. And then I facebombed again because I remember, yes, that's exactly what happens in the, in the comic. Okay, now, the art was good. I agree, Billy Tucci is a really good artist. I actually saw a booth of his at Comic-Con, and it's like, man, he's, he's awesome. And it's kind of cool. I actually kind of liked seeing, like, the original Black Canary and uh, see Zinda and, and Phantom Lady in their prime duking it out. But the main story seems, it's, it seems so dumb. Like, why are they doing, Birds of Prey should be better than this, I think. These are premier characters of the DC Universe. I think they should deserve better than fighting crazy Nazis in modern day society. That sounds like a book that's not even worth DC's time. <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Two out of five batterings. I don't really know how I felt about this. I thought the flashback story, although a little cliche, was really interesting. And, I mean, the problem was, I still found throughout the whole issue was just punctuated with innuendo. And this led me to the question, was Mark Andreco writing Gail Simone's style to fit the tone of the book? Or are these characters just supposed to be written in this over-sexualized style? Because if it is, I don't like it. What that means for me is, hopefully, when we get to Batgirl, I won't mind Gail Simone's writing. If it's these characters just are supposed to be written like this because that's who they are, then I know it's it's those characters I don't like. And hopefully it's not Gail Simone's writing. But if it's the other way around and that's how Gail Simone writes them, and then this new writer is trying to mirror that, and that's the style that that Gail Simone's going to be bringing to Batgirl, I know that I'm going to be bitterly disappointed when I have to read Batgirl making these horrible puns. and it, it's, just, it's not something I really want to read, and I'm not sure if it's about sort of feminine empowerment or if it's just Gail Simone's humour, which I'm not a fan of. But either way, I, I, hope, it's, I hope it's just these characters. One thing... I found a little odd, and I'm no history guy, so I'll have to check with John from the normal cast. But the war ended in 1945, 
So <laughs> I knew this was coming. <laughs> why wouldn't the Hitler Youth have been disbanded? I mean, especially since they're like they're basically kids being brainwashed to sort of think that you know, like the Aryan way of life and that Hitler was the way to go and stuff. But when the war has ended and you know, like. British and US troops and stuff went into Germany and stopped the whole war and stuff and, you know, put an end to, like, the um, concentration camps and everything like that. Why would there be this little this sort of rogue group of kids being taught this stuff running around? I'm pretty sure it would all have been put a stop to. And, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I'll need to check with John, really. But I don't understand why that would still be going on. I mean, overall, I thought this story was interesting, but not necessarily enjoyable because of all the innuendo. So I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. I'm going to give Birds of Prey number 14, two and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our final book, which is Red Robin number 25. Mutant bunnies are a go! I'm waiting for this. Red Robin 25. Written by Fabian Nasiza, illustrated by Marcus Toe. We continue where we left off with Tim Drake about to have sex for the first time, but his V-card is saved by Cassandra Kane, a.k.a. the Black Bat. She frees Tim and the two make short work of, the, of Promise and the daughter of Acheron. They banner a bit, but once Tim has his back turned, he is stabbed by Cassandra and killed instantly. Tim's blood flows into the walls of the hidden pathway and reveals a secret room behind the hieroglyphs. Inside, a voice tells Cassandra that she's earned the right to be immortalized, which equates being shot by a laser. Tim springs to life, pushing Cass out of the way and explains to the hidden voice that he predicted that at some point he would have to fake his death in order to learn the truth. The voice reveals that the assassination tournament was one of many ruses enacted in order to save the world. When Tim probes further the voice's intentions, the voice inquires where Tim sees himself as an adult. Tim imagines three different scenarios, all involving crime and fighting crime in some way, but he claims not to think about it. The room then self-destruct, enforcing Red Robin and Black Bat to quickly flee the area. Back in Gotham, it's revealed that Lucius Fox faked his death for the greater good, leaving Tam very angry at Tim, confessing her love for Red Robin and disgust at Tim Drake. We then cut to Hong Kong, where a supervillain named Cricket destroys both Tim and Cassandra in a straight-up fight, swearing to Black Bat that the next time they would fight for real. Tim returns to Gotham a physical wreck, leaving him out of action and giving him the time to attend to his new base of operations. Once inside, Tim presses a button and reveals that he's just killed Captain Boomerang to be continued. All right, Red Robin number 25. This this started off with, you know, well, how is he going to get out of this predicament? But at the same point, I, I would really hope that uh, it would never come to the point where Tim was not prepared to... I guess I don't even know how to put this to withhold a possible um, <laughs> sexualized uns- attack. Yeah, uh, yeah unso- unsolicited uh, sexual attack by a female that he's never met before. It's, luckily, Cassandra Kane pops out of nowhere and you know is right there. <laughs> uh, did, although that that only leads me to think that hmm, well maybe Cassandra's gonna end up being the person for Tim. Uh, I don't really want to get into that, though. No, we don't. But it was interesting. I think the, the the kind of the downfall of this issue is the fact that we... it's Again, it seems like we ended this storyline that's been happening for quite some time 
only to have the issue that's going to happen in August, not this issue, be just kind of this like one issue story that is just going to occur. And I think in some sense that's it's kind of bad that we're seeing that in so many of these different series instead of having like an, a really impressive ending to the current story. Yeah, I, I don't really have a whole lot to say. I think the whole build-up between, oh, there's just going to be this big fight between Tim and Cassandra was kind of a letdown because that was just a stage thing for, you know, this, this person who's viewing Tim and knowing that Tim is the right person to take over for him or whatever. So, three out of five batterings. <laughs> oh, I love this issue. I love this issue so much. I like I got it and I read it and then like after I was finished I read it again. Now like I mean obviously we were, we were really interested in seeing how it was going to end up considering how the last issue ended up. And if you need a refresher the first page reminds you. But just like I just love like Fabian more than anything gets Tim Drake so well that it just everything here just felt natural and it didn't feel pigeonholed to fit a certain story or character. And it was just what I liked most about it is that I just like how it was really back to Tim Drake as a person and who he was trying to be. Because by the middle point on, the guy questioned, okay, where do you think you're going with your life? You know, you are still fairly young. And he starts reflecting that, you know, yeah, ever since he quit school, he figured this is going to be the rest of his life. And that's sort of being called into question as the series is ending. I thought that the way that he and Cass kind of cheated the system, it was a little ex machina-esque, but... I thought it fit the characters very well. The biggest problem I have with this issue, honestly, is that one page where they're uh, shown getting beaten up by Cricket in Hong Kong, and all of a sudden he says, oh, he destroyed me and, and beat Cassandra, saying that next time he'll fight for real. I wanted to see that story. And yeah, I'm a, I'm a Cassandra Kane mark, but like, seriously, like, who is this guy? Like, how did he fight? I, I hope that's being, that's being followed up on somewhere, because seriously, that, that, that sounded terrific. But the ending with him saying that uh, he'll just have to get used to whatever he's turning into as he just killed Captain Boomerang, assassinated him. Really, this is a very engaging book, and I love I love just seeing like the evolution of Tim's character. So I'm I'm full on uh, where this is headed. Five out of five batterings. I'm with Dustin in that I don't really know what to say about this. It it really feels like the whole title is just rounding up, and um, if I'm honest. I'm not actually that sad that the series is ending because I'm not sure if um, I just don't find the book all that interesting. There are points in the issues, like in all of them, in this one as well, that I like, but nothing to make me fall in love with it. And it's just a book that I sort of read each month, and it's it's just sort of there. There's nothing ever really memorable for me. But and even knowing that the cliffhanger from the last issue wouldn't lead to anything. It still felt very unclimactic, how it ended in the beginning of this issue. And what I would like to see, especially coming out of this issue, would be a fight between Cricket and Damien. Because, I mean, they're both ten, and they've both beaten up Tim Drake. I, that would be a cool fight to see. So if there's like a one-shot, if anyone's listening from DC, I would pay lots of money to see that. Other than that, I'm only going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. Alright, so that is going to give Red Robin, number 25, a total of 3.5 out of 5 bat ranks. That is all of our comic reviews. Let's throw it over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners.
Hello and welcome back to another edition of Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick and I'm your host and today I'm going to be guiding you through a particular Batman story called Mad Love. This is from the Batman series, The Batman Adventures. It's a one-shot comic book which was published in 1994, written by Paul Dini, who's a writer on, who was a writer on the Batman the Animated Series and Batman Beyond. Um, he's been doing some comic work lately as well with things like Gotham City Sirens. And uh, the art provided by Bruce Tim, who's the executive producer on uh, the whole... DC Animated Universe in the 90s. He's also been working um, very hard on the animated films the last few years and is um, a great creator of uh, Batman products. And you know, he was the co-creator of the animated series. So this story is kind of set in the continuity of that original animated series. It won an Eisner Award for the best single story in 1994. And it was later adapted with a few minor alterations uh, as an episode of the animated series in the new Batman Adventures. And so this story details um, the origin and the focuses on the relationship of Harleen Quinzel, or otherwise known as Harley Quinn. So let's find out all about her background. give the punchlines around here. Got it? Yes, sir. So as I mentioned, the story revolves around the Joker's psychic, Harley Quinn, who was once a psychiatrist, Dr. Harleen Quinzel. She fell in love with the Joker after spending time with him inside Arkham Asylum. And she develops an obsession with him and turns to crime just to win his love. Time passes and the Joker still remains fixated on Batman's elimination, rebuffing Quinn's advances and kicking her out of their hideout. Quinn decides that the only way to make the Joker love her is to kill Batman, which she attempts to do by feeding him to a school of piranhas. She nearly succeeds, but Batman distracts her by laughing at Harley's plan and explaining that the Joker's tales about his unhappy childhood were lies, citing several different accounts the Joker has told others. When she insists that the Joker does really love her, Batman convinces her to call the Joker so that he will know she accomplished her goal, as otherwise the piranhas would leave no evidence. The Joker, upon arrival, however, is infuriated that Harley would try to kill Batman herself. Harley explains her plan to him, but this only angers the Joker further, roaring, if you have to explain a joke, there is no joke. The Joker strikes Quinn with a plastic swordfish, causing her to fall out a window. Renee Montoya saves her from her death. The Joker then decides nonetheless to use the opportunity to finally kill Batman, apparently taking Harley's earlier idea of just shooting him instead of a complicated plan, to which the Joker screamed back that Batman's death had to totally humiliate him. This escalates into a wild chase ending atop a moving subway train where Batman confronts his nemesis, taunting him, saying, I have to admit, she came a lot closer to killing me than you ever did. The Joker attacks him, but after a vicious fight, Batman sends the Joker plunging into a burning smokestack. Back in Arkham, a heavily injured Quinn decides that the Joker had merely used her and renounces him forever, wanting nothing more than to heal and leave Arkham for good. But a moment later, she finds flowers sent to her by her clownish bow with a get well soon card, and soon she falls in love with him all over again. 
It soon became clear to me that the Joker, so often described as a raving homicidal madman, was actually a tortured soul crying out for love and acceptance, a lost, injured child trying to make the world laugh at his antics. And there, as always, was the self-righteous Batman, determined to make life miserable for my angel. Yes, I admit it. As unprofessional as it sounds, I had fallen in love with my patient. So I think the story of Harley Quinn's origin is is good fun. I really enjoy the interaction between her and the Joker. I think it's very amusing. It's really interesting to learn about her background. I was fascinated that she was a doctor at Arkham and, and the Joker managed to use her. And I thought it was a great study of her character and the simple effects that her infatuation with the Joker has had on, on her life or or should I call him Mr. J uh, I think Bruce Timm's art is excellent, it's angular, it's blocky style, it's the one that's dominated those those 90s cartoons, the, the best animated stuff we've ever seen on TV and that style is what you get in this book um, and I think it maybe even looks better in, in a comic book um, so I think Mad Love was one of his big debuts on the comic scene and he really did a great job with it you know, the facial expressions on Harley and the Joker are excellent, they're better than the animated series that reinterpreted the episode, it's more detail his work just has an overall energy to it and, and it feels very dynamic and I really really liked it, I think Bruce Timm is a fabulous artist uh, the Joker was done very well here and it opens up a few new facets to his character with, with the partnership with Quinn, their relationship how does it work? Does the Joker actually care for her or is he just using her? Um, what if Harley Quinn did beat Batman? Um, that would have been very interesting Joker has to apparently humiliate Batman before he can kill him and there was a lot crammed into this story, I mean it's fairly brief this story but there was a lot in there and um that was that's to its credit I think you also see that Batman understands both of these villains particularly well he knows exactly how they work and uh, knows how to play them against each other and knows how to manipulate them as well one I wouldn't say it's a flaw with Harley Quinn's character it's more of a frustration in this fact that I understand she's in love with the Joker but she does put up with so much from him um, and there are a few uh you know, beatings in this story which look like they hurt a bit and it's I can understand that she you know, she relentlessly loves the Joker but um, sometimes you have to question it a bit how she puts up with it at all so it feels like the animated series this story with a slightly more mature twist just a little bit with, there, was, I mean, there was a bit of sexual innuendo with the failed seduction moment and the beatings as I mentioned uh, the way she slept with a teacher at college to get a higher grade. Things like that gave it a slightly more mature feel and uh, worked really well for me. So all in all, I really enjoyed this story. Um, it's a great study of not only Harley Quinn, but the Joker and Batman too, and how they, how the trio of them work together. Perhaps got a tiny bit predictable towards the end, but that might just be because I'm familiar with Harley Quinn's character. But uh, mostly, a very good story. Would highly recommend it. Four out of five Batarangs. You know, for what it's worth, I actually enjoyed some of our romps. But there comes a time when a gal wants more. 
And now all this gal wants is to settle down with her loving sweetheart. You and the Joker? Right, Rooney. <laughs> I've never seen you laugh before. I don't think I like it. Cut it out. You're giving me the creeps. You little fool. The Joker doesn't love anything except himself. Wake up, Harleen. He had you pegged for hired help the minute you walked into Arkham. That's not... No. No! He told me things, secret things he never told anyone. Was it his line about the abusive father? Or the one about the runaway mom? He's gained a lot of sympathy with that one. Stop it! You're making me confused! What was it he told that one parole officer? Oh, yes. There was only one time I ever saw Dad really happy. He took me to the ice show when I was seven. Circus. He said it was the circus. He's got a million of them, Harley. You're wrong! My pudding does love me! It does! You're the problem! And now you're gonna die and make everything right! So I hope you enjoyed that story, focusing on a uh, villain for a change. Next time we're going back to the uh, the good side. We're going to be rejoining Robin, and we're going back to the Robin miniseries, which I've been slowly working through. We've done one and two, and now we're going into the third one, which is called Robin, Cry of the Huntress. So it's the third miniseries, and in it, Tim Drake is in trouble with his dad for spending far too much time with Bruce Wayne. And he's in trouble with Batman after making a mistake as Robin. And he's been grounded for a few days. So what does Robin do? He teams up with the Huntress, of course. All in the next episode of BBFB, so look forward to that. I've been Nick. See you then. Bye. Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you're picking up the next issue for the next podcast. Let's get into Bat Books for Delays. What do we've got, Joe? Bat Book Delays. Only one delay, and it is to Batman, the 80-page giant from this year. And it's just been delayed by one week from the 3rd of August to the 10th. And probably not even a proper reason for it, seeing as it's, it must have already been completed. It's probably just to... Uh, move it around to fit in with the DC retroactive Batman issues which are now it's one coming out either side of this so because they're both going to be fairly expensive issues it's probably to try and maximize their uh, their market which is the only reason I can think of it being delayed yeah I think it has to do with them just trying to even it out so there's not you know 599 giants coming out the same week as 499 retros that probably has a lot to do with it all right, so that is all of our bat book delays. Let's get into what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. We'll be covering Batman number 712, Batman Gates of Gotham number 3, DC Retroactive Batman the 70s, or at least the new story inside of that issue, Flashpoint Dead Man and the Flying Graysons number 2, Superman Batman number 86, Batman the Dark Knight number 4, Detective Comics number 880, Gotham City Sirens, 
number 25. So that is all of the issues. Sounds like a lot, but really it's, it's I think, actually less than this episode. This episode may or may not be posting a week after this episode posts, just depending on how we figure out how exactly we're going to match up. So uh, come September, we're actually covering nothing but the new books. We can kind of separate them, despite the fact that there's really going to be a distinct split between the uh, the issues. But we still want to figure out some way, so we may be having an episode right away that will include all of these books, or we may be waiting for the, the following week after that. In that case, we'll be also covering the books released on August 3rd as well. But nonetheless, there's lots of things going on, and next episode will be a little bit short on the news because we had a lot of news in this episode. So with that, that's the end of this episode. Make sure you are checking out the website for all the daily news related to the Batman comics as well as every other aspect of Batman, including movies, TV, merchandise, video game, and general news. There's a number of different things going on, on the website. Obviously, there's tons of other podcasts, the normal podcast, uh, specials, commentaries, interviews. There's all kinds of stuff you can check out and subscribe to on iTunes. Um, you can leave us a review on iTunes for any of those podcasts. But there's also a number of different ongoing features that we're doing. Uh, for instance, Joe's actually leading up a c- caption competition where every week he posts up a picture and it's up to you guys, the fans, to kind of fill in the bubble and uh, tell us what uh, the, the person in the bubble is either thinking or saying out loud. So check that out. Those post up every Friday morning and then we announce the winner the, f- the following Thursday as well. And, uh, yeah, please contribute to that because it really does get me through my week. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's interesting seeing some of the comments because every time I get there's a new comment, I get an email saying there's a new comment, and it's funny to see some everybody's responses. Depending on how successful it gets over time, we may introduce some prizes to it, but no promises now. We just really wanted to make it successful and get people really involved in it because it's something really fun to do. It's not necessarily news-based or very serious, because we all know Batman's very serious. But with that, you can also join the forums and discuss all kinds of other Batman topics, as well as all kinds of other topics with other Bat fans on the forums. Make sure if you join the forums, you can email us and uh, let us know that you registered so we can get your account activated promptly. You can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net for any questions, comments, or concerns for this episode or any other episode or any other podcast for that matter. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you are a comic book reviewer, we are always looking for new reviewers on the website to write written reviews. But also if you do video interviews of of books and you post them on the internet, we're interested in you guys too. So uh, if you guys want to spread your, I guess, your name or your reviews out across the internet... We are definitely looking for a bunch of comic book reviewers. We want to make sure we try to get all of the books covered to come this September. So give us a shout, and uh, we'll see if, what we can what we can plan out for September and even before then and after then. So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. And this is Joe. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Take care, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye.
first of all, Donovan, I'm disappointed you don't like my assonance, but uh, I will. I'm sorry? My assonance of electrical areas. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's all good. <laughs> You're an assonance. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay um, yeah. Written by Fabian Nices. How do you say his name again? Nicezo. Alright, so that's going to bring us to our next review, which is Flashpoint Batman Night of Vengeance number two. And what an issue. Flashpoint. Well, uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Has his throat slit by the Joker, just as Batman bursts through the front doors of the manor, screaming. Where, well, scream, screaming, what have you done this time? Don't get ahead of yourself here. Don't get ahead of yourself there. I'm so excited. It's awesome. (laughs) Okay, calm down. Where should I go from? Batman bursts into, or Bruce, or Tom, whatever you say, bursts in the door. Jim has his throat slut. (laughs) His throat is a slut. (laughs) It's been a long day. Okay. (laughs) 